Welcome to Searchlight, the first of the entrepreneur's journey with Sharon and John Burkett from Startup Redlands. Now, just to give you a bit of a heads up, once a month, we're going to dive into the ins and outs of being an entrepreneur. Now, the theme for tonight is, what's a startup? And what are the key attributes of an entrepreneur's mindset? And believe me, entrepreneurs do actually think differently. But now's a brilliant time to be an entrepreneur. If you're feeling uncertain at work, will your job be there in the future? That's an interesting question. Maybe you've got a great idea and you don't know what to do with it next. Stay listening. Maybe you're seeing an opportunity to bring some manufacturing or some goods back to Australia so that we're not so reliant on China. All valid questions, so many opportunities, so little time. But you're in the right place to join us on the entrepreneur's journey and you can join the conversation as well. Here's the phone number and I'll give it to you again throughout the evening. 382. 2100022 and all you need to do is press 1 to come through to the studio and you can join our conversation. Now our guests for this evening we've got Cindy Corrie, she is the CEO of Sycamore School. This is a brilliant school here in the Redlands. Autism friendly education right here. We're going to be chatting with Cindy. Shannon Stone. Now, Shannon won the International Women's Day Award for Young Emerging Leader. Shannon is absolutely vibrant. You are going to love hearing about her story. Marianne Thexton and we'll have on the phone Lynette Roos from Marl Wellness. Now, they've developed delicious nutritional products. Now, I know this, everyone says they've got the delicious nutritional products, but this is pre and probiotic. So they're good for you and for your kids. And as an added bonus, they're yummy and they'll be in the shop soon. So we'll, we'll find out more about that. In the second hour, we're going to be talking about opportunities to go to events, meet people, ask questions, find yourself mentors and find like-minded people because that is so, so important. One of the most amazing women I have ever met is on this journey tonight with us. Her name is Monica Bradley. Now, Monica is going to give us details about an incredible event that's coming up soon. You want to hear about that. In the third hour, we'll put the spotlight on our featured startup of the month with Christine Keeling from Long Hall Spa. You want to pamper yourself? Have a chat with Christine. Find out more about her story. But right now, the co-host for tonight and for all of the, the series of Searchlight, The Entrepreneur's Journey, I would like to welcome business owner of Advice Point Business Consulting in the Redlands. He is an entrepreneur, an angel investor, a mentor, a wonderful man, and he hosts the not-for-profit Startup Redlands, John Burkett. Hello and welcome, my co-host. So good to be here again. It's fantastic. I mean, we've twice we've done this before, and and twice I've been your guest, but now I get a promotion to co-presenter. How yeah, good you is that? Do. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's really great to be here, and I'm really looking forward to not just the program we've got this evening, but also uh, the whole series of programs we've got. Because the plan is, we're going to try and explore in each of the next uh, twelve programs the various steps on the entrepreneurial journey. All those pleasure and pain points that entrepreneurs go through in terms of getting that startup, getting their business off the ground. We're going to spend a little time drilling into each of those. And I won't go through the list now. We'll run through it a little bit later. But uh, this evening, it's very much about being at the starting point. So uh, as, uh, as Sharon just mentioned, we're going to try and explore 
what may seem like very straightforward questions, but they don't always have straightforward answers. So what is a startup? Believe it or not, there's a wide range of answers to that question. But at the same time, we're going to try and drill a little bit into you know, what is it that sets entrepreneurs apart? What is it about the entrepreneurial mindset, entrepreneurial thinking that really makes it a bit different? And maybe what can you do to try and tune into that a little bit? So uh, hopefully during the course of the evening with, with our wonderful collection of guests, and by the way, yes, I am your token man here for this evening. This is partly <laughs> celebration of international Women's Day, yay! Um, so we we'll be drilling into some of those some of those issues and some of those aspects. So um, this is going to be a great journey. I am so looking forward to it. Me too. Now, just before we uh, jump into a quick song, Startup Redlands. Oh, Startup Redlands. Uh, yes, get, let's get the plugs in early. Okay, so Startup Redlands is uh, is our local uh, startup uh, innovation ecosystem networking event. It's kind of become the hub of the local uh, ecosystem around here. And it is a lot of fun. It's, uh, it's fun. It's meant to be fun. Uh, we do it every third Wednesday of each month. Uh, we do it in the local pub. We have it in the bench down at Cleveland, and it's good fun, and it's fantastic. But it's a pitch competition. So we have three pitchers come along. They do their pitch. It's sort of like a mini shark tank, but much more fun and there's and there's booze at the bar which is even better um and so we have a pitch competition there's a little panel of judges and then the winners walk away with prizes courtesy of our fantastic sponsors uh bendigo community bank uh, and elysium restaurant and bar down at uh, victoria point and so the bench. yeah and the bench and the bench who are the venue sponsors they do a great job looking after us so we have a little pitch we have a little talk from somebody somebody's come along talks about an interesting topic or we have an entrepreneur's journey talk uh cindy did one of those for us the other week uh, we're going to hear more about that a little bit later. And uh, so that's the next one is Wednesday the 18th. So that's a week on Wednesday. If you want to come along, you really do need to register, but it's completely free. You need to go along to www.startupredlands.com.au and just hit the button to get a ticket and you can see all about the pitches. We've got some really interesting pitches. Might talk a bit more about those a little bit later. We certainly can. In the meantime, I think this song's kind of appropriate. LRB. Entrepreneur's Journey, help is on its way. This is Bay FM 100.3. Way more than just great music. This is Bay FM 100.3. Searchlight and the Entrepreneur's Journey. So, we're going to kick off this evening by talking to Cindy Corey, who was the founder of the Sycamore School, uh, based at Alex Hills. Cindy, you were very kind to come along to Startup Redlands, the last Startup Redlands we had, and you gave a fantastic entrepreneur's journey talk, which, which was a full 20 minutes, and, and you, you filled it, and it was brilliant. Um, could you just give us a sort of precied version of that, and just give us a little flavour of the, where you started from and where you got to, and what that journey was about? Because I know in your case it has a particularly personal resonance. Yeah, and I think um, the thing to remember about the reason people start things is often because they're experiencing something in their lives, or um, in they've someone close to them is going through something that that really shows them a problem and they try and solve it and for a lot of um, particularly social enterprises and not-for-profit organizations that's really where they all kind of start is someone's experience so that happened to us um, with our son um, who at the age of three was diagnosed with autism and in the time between when he was diagnosed and when he started school, he went through five childcare centres in those two years. And that was a bit of a flavour of what we thought was going to happen when we started to look for a school. And that 
is pretty much what happened. We had close to 40 to 50 schools around Queensland pretty much say, don't have the expertise or the resources to support you. And so a range of serendipitous circumstances happened and came about and we found ourselves basically starting a not-for-profit from scratch. Um, I was not in the education field or in the not-for-profit sector, so I had no idea what I was doing. Um, But it took us on a journey of starting up a not-for-profit and registering a charity and putting all of those fantastic governance frameworks in place that allowed us to then apply for accreditation and open a school. So... You say you found it a not-for-profit, but I mean, that's it's still a pretty serious business though, isn't it, that you've got there? Absolutely, and, and not-for-profits are um, quite different to, I guess, the corporate world that I was used to. I was a corporate insurance broker in mining and energy, so absolutely no connection to the not-for-profit sector, but it was a completely different way of thinking about the outcomes that a business provides, and that's the key, I think, with social enterprise and not-for-profits, is we're looking at impact, we're looking at change, we're looking at challenging the existing trajectories for people um, and unpacking sort of complex human systems and we're sort of trying to change what we think our futures are going to be and testing that, and and that's a really hard space to be in. So, in very simple terms, you you know you had a problem. There was no solution to that problem, and so it was a case of well, if it isn't there, I'm going to build it. Yeah, I, it's the only gonna, it's the only viable way you were going to find a solution to that problem was to do it yourself. Yeah, and we spent a long time um, turning over stones, really looking for those options, and we looked at moving into state. Um, but, you know, that's a whole set of risk factors when you've got a child um, with autism. So that really wasn't going to work. Um, and I went and met with um, the people who manage those accreditation processes and said, you know, what is it that we can do? Have I missed something? And they sort of just said to me, well, you can open your own school. And I just went, huh? I didn't even think you could do that. Who opens schools? I'd never heard. I'm a person who just opened a school, not recently, anyway, and typically isn't it something that churches do? Like, I I honestly had no connection to this idea that someone could open a school. And so when they said, take this wadding pile of paperwork home and if we ever see you again, we'll help you, I went, wow, this really is not something that happens a lot. And they actually said to us, you'd be the first independent... Um, specialist school that would open in Queensland in 50 years. Yeah, that, so, that, that would have put a lot of people off. It but did. It, it didn't put you off. <laughs> so put that's, off. that's what I find most interesting about the story is most people presented with that sort of brick wall of bureaucracy, rules, compliance would have just run away. I would. <laughs> and but, to but, do that with a child with autism at the same time, you had an awful lot on your plate. Yeah, well, I quit my corporate job (laughs) pretty quickly. Um, I quit my corporate job and I went and actually did post-grad study in autism studies so that I could actually learn about the things that we were supposed to do as a school. What are the evidence-based pedagogical frameworks and curriculums and things that were really important to ensuring that the school would deliver um, what it should from an evidence perspective but the other side of that was what did the community want 
and that was really important for us. And our process in unpacking what the school would provide was very, very inclusive. We made sure that our community, our families, um, adults on the spectrum, researchers, um, stakeholders from you know various sectors were all involved in informing what it was that Sycamore would set out to achieve. And that's really, really important. But I think you, you, you did, I think you did a bit more than that because you weren't just setting up this school. You were setting up the school to fix your problem, but clearly a school for one child wasn't gonna be a cost-effective proposition. No. What, what work did you do to see if there was gonna be, you know, to use the terminology, a viable market space? You know, how many, at what point did you realize you were gonna be able to get enough fill a school with enough children to make it a viable proposition? Well, my husband and I spent our weekends um, in public libraries around Brisbane and we would we set up a Facebook page and we said, you know, we're just a, 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 you know, a couple of parents that want to make this change and we want to hear from our community about what is it that you want school to do and with your interest, are you interested in enrolling a child, your child in a school that would do these things? And for us, it was really tricky because we were asking people to take a leap of faith. I was asking people to um, to tell me that they would put a child in a school that doesn't exist. And so for a long time, I mean, this process went on for two and a half years um, from light bulb moment to, you know, doors are opening, kids are starting. So for most of that time, it, the school actually didn't exist. We had to get people to believe in us and believe in our dream and what we were hoping for um, and they did and when we started to collect expressions of interest for enrolment we had um, by the time we actually opened enrolments close to 500 that's and amazing. we were not going to open a school for 500 kids we were going to open a school wow. for about 50 <laughs> so we still challenged by community needs so you got a market opportunity for nine more then okay yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so but that's a really important point because one of the things we're going to talk about in a later program is is the work that needs to be done to validate if you've got a viable market so you know, did you do that automatically or did somebody sort of say, hey, this is what you've got to do or did it just appear like complete common sense to you that that was what had to be done? Well, I knew um, that there was going to be community need because the more that we started to understand what was happening in our own lives, the more that we started to understand things like only 6% of adults on the spectrum are financially independent, I was like, that's not going to be my child because that's not the future I'm willing to accept. And clearly, something needs to change. There's a bigger impact that can be had using their time in education. They only get 10 years to set themselves up for the rest of their lives. And that seems to be the area that really doesn't get any specialist support. So for me, it made total sense in terms of the solution. In terms of whether it was going to be viable... Well, we had the community need. We had the numbers. We didn't have the money. Ah, minor problem. <laughs> Slightly. <laughs> Slightly. We're not that well off, my husband and I. <laughs> how did, just out of interest, then, how did you fix that? Well, schools get, every school gets government funding, federal and state, and that funding is provided 
based on evidence that you provide to the government with levels of support that you provide for each of your students and every student gets a base level of funding, specialist schools have their slightly loaded. So the fact was that we didn't have a school that was open so I didn't have kids to collect evidence about to apply for funding. So there was going to be a period of time where we needed the working capital not just to open the school but to actually run and operate for a good six months before we were going to get a cent of federal funding or state funding. So whilst it was all financially viable once you can access that, what happens when you're a startup? You have to fund it. And So many, how did you do that? Well, we, um, I started going to um, startup events, basically. And as I started to do that, I started to realise they were really aimed at tech startups and I felt a bit out of my depth and I was like, I'm not here, I'm not in the right place. Um, and then when I started speaking to people about what we were doing, they said, but this is still social impact. There are a group of investors who would be interested um, in supporting causes like this and you just need to be looking in the right place. Go and see if you can find a social impact intermediary. And that's not easy. So that's part and parcel of, of what we're going to be doing with this program is to to point you in the direction of, okay, you've got a need, where can you go? Because you said you, you went off to, to various startup meetings. Okay, for the, someone who's literally brand new on that journey, the question is, where's a startup meeting? And how do I get to it? <laughs> so, you know, we're here to answer all of those questions that it is a struggle, isn't it? When you oh, are brand spanking new and your brain is boggled, you just don't know where to go, what to do or who to talk to. That's exactly right. And it did feel like a bit of a lonely journey. Mm. And I think there's still as much as we like to um, support entrepreneurs and support people who are doing new things, there is still that lonely founder syndrome. Mm. Um, and I think that that um, was definitely true for those good three years. You know, it really felt like we were in it and it was up to us and we'd have anyone to lean on and it was really just, you've just got to get through it and you've just got to find options. What I'm interested in about that is, I mean, three years is a, is a long time. Yeah. And, you know, clearly at the beginning of that journey, it was research and all that sort of stuff. At what point for you did it become real? At what point did you say to yourself, we're going to make this happen, I'm going to make this happen? What Was there a, was there a tipping point? Yeah, there was a lot of, um, I guess, uncertainty for a long time. And as much as we were encouraged by the community, at the end of the day, I needed an education minister that gave me the tick to say, go ahead. So I needed to get my accreditation done. Um, and I needed the funding. I needed that working capital. And they were really the two big things um, that impacted whether this was going to come off or not. So once I'd received um, the written approval from the education minister at the time, um, that was really the, okay, drop everything. We've got six months. Get that, get that working capital signed off. Um, and, so and so that was going. the point when you had a fixed timeline. It was yep. like, you've got this approval, yep. now this has to happen in this timeline. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, that's and dogged determination. Yeah, no sleep, mm -hmm. 
Sleep's overrated. <laughs> because the program is is on uh, the entrepreneur's mindset. Did you realise you had entrepreneurial thinking mindset before all of this occurred, or was it just thrust upon you and you kind of figured it out as you went? No, I didn't know. And you know, recently I I spoke at a um, all girls high school in Sydney. Um, for International Women's Day, and I was talking about, um, you know, this this mind this this attitude we have when we're finishing school about all the things we want to do and the direction that we want to take. And and I had some students come to me afterwards and talk about, oh, I want to do this, and I'm really you know really hesitant. And I just said to them, do you know what? You have no idea what's ahead of you. You have no idea what's ahead of you. And really, you need to just enjoy what you want to do, take it, enjoy it, work hard, get as far as you can with it, because life will throw things at you that you are not prepared for. And you will find yourself at nearly 40 years of age doing something that you never, ever thought. (laughs) Everyone's laughing at me because I said nearly 40. But (laughs) no, um, no, this is a room full of women and every single one of them (laughs) sat back with the biggest grin on their face and went, yeah. I ain't saying a word. (laughs) (laughs) But it is, and it is. You don't know where life's going to take you. Autism, you know, we've had lots of other um, big impacting things in our lives as a family. Um, opening school certainly one of them. Um, but I think that it's um, about discovering who you are in your journey. And I think the more that life throws at you, the more you learn about yourself. Um, I think that we change. I think we evolve. I don't think Forging we're ever the steel. same person. So Forging I, I, steel goes through goes through the hard, you know, uh, the hard times yeah. to, to forge something that is strong. I think that's all true, but I think you'll be modest because well, that's... Thanks, no, it's, it's a serious, <laughs> you know, to take that, to take what you did with that takes a serious degree of single-minded commitment. Which is the kind of attribute you is one of the I think one of the key attributes of a, of a good entrepreneur, a good, yep. certainly a good startup entrepreneur, is you've got to be completely laser-like focused on what it is you want to achieve, and if problems come up, you just bat them out of the way, just one by one by one, bang, 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 bang. You did that, and and that is that is not something everybody can do. I mean, it would be great to think everybody could do it, and and we want to encourage as many people as we can to do it, but. But, I mean, the fact that you did that is... Uh, I'm stunningly impressed, I have to say. I think it's an amazing achievement. You should be massively applauded for There's it. There's nothing mm. like your own child to motivate you to do things like that. And I don't think that there are many things in our lives that really give us that motivation. So, in a way, we're very lucky, and we thank our son every day, <laughs> um, as challenging as he could be at times. Um, but... You know, he's a very important part of the recipe of all this. And one of the things that you actually haven't mentioned so far, proudly, Sycamore School is is in the Redlands. Please give us the address. For those (laughs) people who don't know about this wonderful school, tell us where it is. So our little school, which has grown quite a bit, so we opened with, I think it was 47 kids. We're just in our fourth year and we have 92 um, next year we will have close to 100 and then I think we're at saturation point in our space. But we are located at the very back of the Alexandra Hills TAFE campus. 
Um, we have some very, very incredible, incredible students at the Sycamore School and they surprise us every day. Um, we're very proud of what they've achieved in the time that they've been with us, whether it's been a term or the whole three years. Um, every student in that school um, is making incredible progress, so we're extremely proud of them. That's wonderful. This is Cindy Corey, CEO of Sycamore School. We'll be back in just a moment, going to have a, a little music interlude, and we're going to continue and we're going to have a chat with Marianne and Shannon. This is Bay FM. FM 100.3, this is Searchlight and the Entrepreneur's Journey and we are having such an amazing time here in the studio. The information is flowing and it is just incredible. We've got a big night ahead, of, ahead for you, <laughs> lots of things to take notice of. But we just had Cindy from Sycamore School here in the Redlands with an amazing story. If you happen to have a child on the spectrum or you know a friend with a child on, on the spectrum, please get them to tune in and stay listening because we've got some really interesting things coming up for you a little bit later this evening on Searchlight, the entrepreneur's journey. But right now, I'd like to introduce you to Shannon Stone. And no, it's not Sharon, it's Shannon. Shannon Stone. She is young, vibrant, absolutely incredible and amazing. Shannon won the International Women's Day Award for Young Emerging Leader. Woohoo, Shannon. Thank you. Thank you so much. So what did you do to get that? I'm jealous. <laughs> I guess I'm still asking myself a little bit the same question. What did I do? What did I do well? Um, I guess how it came about, one of my very passionate clients was always encouraging me to nominate for different awards and I saw this one come up and I thought it was a great opportunity and it definitely has been the awards night was uh, not Friday just gone the one prior and so it's brand spanking new brand spanking new yep 10 days and counting and um and it was perfect timing with International Women's Day being yesterday as well so I think it it's really good to bring light to so many different women especially in business as well and as we're sitting here with so many other amazing women I think everyone is deserving of the award so I'd love to hand it around well you can did you bring it <laughs> <laughs> so okay uh, you you mentioned one of your um, clients who just absolutely sounds like they adore what you do two questions in that what do you do and give kudos to your client yeah, absolutely. So what I do, I'm a business and marketing consultant. So I help businesses who are quite often struggling to grow their own businesses. I help them come up with ideas and strategies, um, whether it's online or offline, to uh, then grow their business. And I help support them through that process as well. So I don't uh, tell them, uh, I basically coach them and teach them what to do. So when I'm not there, they actually know what to do and how to grow independently on their own. Um, and to answer your second question, my client, Anne, Angela, she runs an amazing business called Vision Accountable. So she's an accountability coach. And I think all of us as business owners know the importance of accountability. So um, that is what she specializes in and just an amazing human being as well. And you're a, you're a founder as well. So yeah. you founded and started your own business. How long ago was that? 
Uh, four and a half years ago now. So what made you decide that you were going to go out and work for yourself, be in business for yourself with your own startup? Yeah, definitely. I always feel like my story is not as glamorous or as light bulb moment as everyone else's. Um, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> what came about for me is um, I'm a young single mum, so I had my daughter when I was 19. And and so I'm 30 now as well. I always have to address that. I'm 30 now and I definitely don't look that. No, not at all. <laughs> uh, it's the genes from mum. Um, so I had my daughter and I, after having her, I went and studied um, business and marketing. And then I went into working full time. Um, but as any corporate-ish kind of job, it's never nine to five, Monday to Friday. It's kind of like that and the rest of your life. It's the breakfast networking events. It's the weekend seminars and all those kind of things. And I did that for a couple of years and then I just didn't want to be that parent. In my eyes, I wanted to be a parent who was a bit more present. My daughter at the time when she started school, she was going to before and after school care and so I felt very removed from her learning and from her life growing up. So um, that uh, that was really my motivation for wanting to start my own business. So I took my own skills in marketing, everything I'd learned in all these businesses I'd worked in and that's how it all came about. Well, congratulations. Uh, Monica said something a, a little while ago uh, when we were playing the song is that a lot of women are motivated by family. And by mm -hmm. things. So there's two stories so far of being motivated by family. A different outcome, different uh, startup, different story, different business, but oh my gosh, similar start similar reason to yeah start. yeah definitely and I've got a really great circle of business friends um, as we were talking a little bit before behind the scenes a lot of us do struggle with loneliness and that kind of thing so I've got a great network of fellow um, women and and men as well in business but a couple of them said I see the difference in uh, parent business owners or mum business owners they're just driven by their children well you have to be and so I do find it to be a privilege to be a mum and be in business because because I've got that motivation that some people kind of have to dig from where they kind of getting it from if they don't have kids. Well, so. that's true, but it's still there is a mindset that goes with that. So um, how would you describe your mindset? Yeah, definitely. Well, if I rewind four and a half years ago, I didn't expect to have to include, I probably didn't, couldn't even tell you the definition of mindset because it's such a buzzword now and we all know about it. But it's been probably the number one thing I had to focus on and I've worked with so many mindset mentors and different coaches and all sorts of different things and we all focus on mindset. So I look to mindset, personal development, Tony Robbins, all that kind of thing to help get me through or to help um, improve my day-to-day -day business. So when you have, and every single business does have it, your down moments, your doubt there's that voice in your head that just says you can't do it, you shouldn't do it. Who the heck do you think you are? Mm -hmm. How did you deal with that? Yeah, definitely. Uh, it still definitely comes up. Um, what I find is probably, you know, a couple years ago, you kind of go down that rabbit hole of that, that inner dialogue that, you know, I can't do it or this is too hard or should I go and do something else when things come a little bit tough? Um, but 
for me if i for me what works is like i don't want to go back to working that nine to five i don't want what i had before i rather not know what i'm going to get and actually just move forward in that so what really helped me i'm, I'm great with quotes as well so one i always would focus on is just what is the next step just focus on that one next step because sometimes you can get a little bit blurry vision if you think of you know everything you have to do ahead of you but if you just focus on okay well the next thing i need to do is i need to call that person or the next thing i need to do is find some friends in business or just get funding like whatever it might be focus on that one next thing and then i find that helps to get me through have you gone out to get funding not for me personally i'm i guess in my business model that's not the type of business that um i need to go and get funding but i know you know quite a few businesses to get that capital up front that's what really helps to get them through and i can't even imagine or i can only imagine the type of mindset um resilience they've had to build up to go through that and there is a lot of resilience that is required for for any form of entrepreneurial adventure and venture yeah, and that's 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 really interesting because, I mean, you, you so you've done the startup thing, but just go back to the theme of the program. What what for you? And you would deal with a range of business owners and founders. I'm guessing is, is yeah, kind of what you yeah. Is there something that you see that is a common thread that runs through people who are probably more successful and do more interesting stuff? Do you, do you think there's a do you think there's an entrepreneurial personality type? Yeah, I definitely do. And uh, last couple of days, last couple of weeks, I've had a few conversations around that, around, it's like you can kind of pick, okay, that person has it in them to go and do, to be in business or be an entrepreneur. Um, And I think it's an entrepreneur who can actually pick that, whereas someone who may not have that, that, I don't know, whatever it is, a glow or a skill set within them, they can't see it within them. But I think the true entrepreneur can it's almost like an intuition. I don't know what it is, but you can just tell. It's it, whatever it. Yeah, it, it, yes. yeah. <laughs> it. Okay, define it. And that would be an interesting question. How do you define it? Uh, but I think you're correct. There yeah. is something. I, I, I think there's... Actually, no, I've got a, I put a bit, a bit of a theory about this. I, yeah. I, I think there is an it, whatever it may be. I think you can learn some aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, actually, one of the core drivers of that is innate people skills. Um, people who've got the ability to understand the thinking of others, the people who can communicate well, the people who can put their, their message across in a way that relates to people, um, those who are able to, to, to lead a, a group of employees and take them on the journey, all that sort of stuff. All of those things sort of combine, I think, into a, into a, into a people skills thing. One of the things I've kind of noticed over the years is when I look at, you know, I've known some pretty successful people most of whom are actually, for the most part, really nice people. They're actually quite, yeah, they're smart, they're intelligent, they're very successful, but they're also just really nice people. And I actually, one of my little pet theories is is because they've got the innate people skills. I'm not sure it's the whole answer, but I think it's a significant part of it. That's that's my... I would add to that empathy. That's part of that package. Mm. Yeah. Because to, to find, to identify a problem... And to create a solution, you have to have empathy with the people that you're creating the solution for. 
you've got to have empathy but you've also got to communicate on it and uh I, I, monica i think may have some now I should, I, we should introduce monica bradley monica <laughs> monica and i've known each other for several years and we we both move in similar circles around the uh southeast queensland sort of startup ecosystem space um monica you're absolutely going to have a view on that topic i'm sure um i am going to have a view on that i think the innate thing is that women are driven and motivated by you said it yourself you couldn't balance your other responsibilities and live your life for your family the way you wanted and have a corporate job right so i think one of the innate things about an entrepreneur and certainly the female entrepreneurs is that ability to forego an easier life for a more difficult life in maybe the short term because an aspect of their life is better in your case it was the flexibility and autonomy to do your work around spending more time with your daughter and in the school and that and in your case um Cindy it was about you know solving the problem for uh, you know your child and a whole bunch of other the children and you were willing to forego a really much easier life in one respect in that you would have had a good income coming in you would have superannuation you would have paid holidays you know you would have corporate support um and then go looking for but you would have a child there was a restlessness in you to solve this problem better than it had been solved before so for me in particularly the female entrepreneur we see this really strong drive to solve this problem because your current circumstances available to you don't do it. I love that. That, yeah, it's interesting. As I say, I'm suddenly feeling the minority here. But <laughs> um, Sorry to say, John, you're um, actually in this room. You are the minority. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I'm just aware of it. I just that's my that's my empathy skills. I'm aware of it. Yeah, that's, that's, my, that's my EQ thing. Yeah, that's it. Uh, so, Monica, that's 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 really interesting. Having said that, there is clearly successful male entrepreneurs as well. They'll keep the equality thing going. Um, <laughs> Do you do you think there is something broader than that in terms of I mean if you were to have a go at defining the elusive it beyond what you just said I mean was there anything else you you would put into that equation Oh, well, the elusive if is you just have to absolutely love the pain point that you're solving for, right? And and that has to be more important than anything else that will come up that will, that might distract you. Um, but you do have to have the ability to live on almost no money, right? <laughs> and and be really clever in how you budget because that's really painful. You know, you'll have years, you know, and then you've got to be able to live with the constant pressure of making cash flow if you've got um, and paying wages. So I think there's that aspect to it. Um, there's certainly an aspect of skill. So you do have to be able to either have the skills or obtain the skills or hire people with the skills. Women are very good at that in finding other people that can come on the journey um, that can help them deliver it. Um, and then I think you have to have, and I think I, I see women are very good at this because um, guess what? We run the supply chain and logistics for households. Um, we make 70% of the procurement uh, decisions in any country are made by women. Um, so we're very, we're very used to in our, in our area of our homes and in our workplaces in actually managing and planning and executing those plans. Just getting four kids out the door of a school and getting them to a full day's work is actually a supply chain logistics job, right? Um, and women are really good at that. And so taking those planning skills of how to anticipate, how to think forward, how to allocate it and then bring it back is really important in business because you have to be able to. And we, the other thing women do is they under-borrow, which we'd like to rectify, but they over-deliver. Um, so women hate owing people money. Mm. They will work every day God's earth is given to repay that money. Women's, the rates of women defaulting is incredibly low. Um, 
I wouldn't pretend to know. I have seven brothers, um, so I do know a lot about men. I've worked in male-dominated industries most of my life. I wouldn't um, assume to know the it that's maybe different in the man. I can just tell you I'm a woman and I've been an entrepreneur most of my life. Some of those I've spent inside companies, entrepreneurially changing things. But I have a, an absolute restless innateness to rectify things that don't turn up in the world the way that I want them to. And that's what drives me to start a business, to start more businesses, to support other women that are on that same journey um, uh, but really with the business that I'm involved in now which is CEO I'm really trying to solve the problem that less than 4% of the world's capital goes to women mm -hmm. can we just hear that again mm -hmm. less than 4% of the world's capital that is open to be invested in businesses goes to women led businesses and that's in the startup community. So Shio has got a very, very special message. And we're going to be talking more about Shio uh, very shortly. Because, uh, ladies, if you've got an idea, if you want to get out there in the marketplace, Shio is one of the best places that you can go. And mark this on your calendar. It's April 2. So uh, Monica will talk more about that in just a moment. We'll be back uh, and we're going to play another another piece of music and then we'll be back with Marianne. You want to find out about pre and probiotics for your kids, pack them in the lunch boxes. Marianne has got an amazing story to talk about very shortly. This is Bay FM 100.3. We're on the entrepreneur's journey. Bernard Fanning. I just want to wish you well. This is Bay FM 100.3. Searchlight for your Monday night right up until 10 o'clock. And we're talking about the entrepreneur's journey. If you've just joined us, it is an amazing studio full of people. My co-host from Startup Redlands is John Burkett. And he's the only male in the room at the moment. I'm, I'm managing. I'm surviving. It's, it's he's quite he's surviving. It's good. It's good. <laughs> we have Monica Bradley. Now, Monica is just absolutely incredible in the whole business, startup, founders, entrepreneurial journey story. Monica is the person who is the it person. If um, if Monica doesn't know them, then they're not worth knowing. <laughs> We're going to get more to Monica's story very shortly because there's some interesting things coming up. We'll get to Marianne in just a moment. We've, we've had Cindy and she is the CEO from Sycamore School, which is a brilliant school looking after autism children here in the Redlands, the startup journey and what Cindy and her husband had to go through to get this school created. It was just incredible. And we had Shannon, Shannon Stone, who is the International Women's uh, Award winner for Young Entrepreneur of the Year and just another incredible story. So I hope you're enjoying this journey. We've got so, so much more to go. But right now, if you've got kids, uh, here's something that you might find interesting as well. Marianne. Now, Marianne Thexton and her business partner, Lynette Roos. Lynette may join us on the, the phone from Mal Wellness. Now, they've developed nutritional products that are pre and probiotics. So they're good for you, but not only that, they actually taste really good. And uh, I understand 
the benefits of pre and probiotics. So how did you get into this? What's your story? Evening, Sharon. Well, the interesting thing is I actually started a company and we developed a pre and probiotic for horses. And we took that into small animals and then we actually took it into commercial livestock for cattle and sheep. And at the end of the day, we were getting unsolicited results, people sending us photos and and telling us things about their animals that were you know, we, we knew it was a good idea and a good product, but it was unexpected and we were inundated with uh, voluntary sort of referrals and feedback and photos. In what way? So what um, were they saying? Um, well, obviously animals were doing really well. Like the condition was improving, coats were looking great. Um, it's it certainly the science is there to show that um, a good gut health or microbiome is imperative for overall wellness, so transfer of nutrients, etc. Mm. But also things like, oh, my horse has never been so quiet or my old dog has got a new lease of life. So we were getting this type of feedback. Anyway, long story short, um, that company four years ago, um, the family that were the major shareholders took over the running of the company and I exited and I thought, what am I going to do now? <clears throat> so I decided to go to uni and um, and do an MBA and just... You just finished that recently, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, I graduated yeah. in October. My kids are like, Mum, you're living the life of a 20-year-old. <laughs> That's because of the pre and probiotics, by the way. Well, absolutely. <laughs> and and it had been an itch I had to scratch is why can't we do this for people? Why can't we bring that wellness yeah. into pe- into people's lives? And while there's a lot of options out there in the probiotic and prebiotic world, what Lynette and I have just worked on, and she's a, a friend I've known for years, and when we started to talk, we were just on the same page, is we wanted to bring this wellness opportunity into everyday products that are affordable. Because I know, for example, myself, if I'm in the supermarket and I want the organic, all natural, whatever it is, whether it's um, you know laundry detergent or a mushroom, I have to think, oh, gosh, can, can I, I afford, afford this? Yeah. You know, I want to buy the sustainably, socially responsible stuff and I want to buy the stuff that's the best for me and my family, but sometimes I just can't afford it. So we wanted to develop a range of products. So it's it's our first product to market is a children's drink that is shelf-stable. That's one of the key things about our technology, our biotechnology, is that they're live microbes, but they don't need to be refrigerated. So it stands the rigours of the school lunchbox, which is a big problem for mums. And can be left out in the sun if necessary. Makes no difference. Right. And and it's under 5% sugar with no added sweetness. So they're mm-hmm. the two things that mums have been telling us forever, that there's nothing that's under 10% sugar, you know, even juices or whatever it is. And this is actually a healthy product. It's pre and probiotic. So the prebiotic can be as important as the probiotic, but the combination one and one seems to be about five. So I went back to the scientists that would be able to help me with this, and we've worked. It's been a two and a half year project, and um, I think I'm going to touch on some of the things we talked about. Where, what is it, and how do you get over all those hurdles? And it was really, I just went back to people I know that might be able to help me and asked for them to help me. And they all said, yeah, we'll help you. In what way? Um, so uh, I do have a beverages background in oh. New Zealand. Uh, we started a company and sold several years later. 
And so I just went back to the flavour house and the ingredient suppliers that we dealt with back then and said, I've got an idea. And I pitched the idea to them and they said, yeah, we'll help you. So they put the food technologists on board and you know, went back to some scientists and microbiologists that I knew and said, can we do this for people? And they're like, yep, we can. So I think not being scared to go and ask people for help and you'd be surprised how many people actually get on board. So um, Bond University have been fantastic. I've uh, been working with their Transformer Hub there. And we've had students, we've had the program managers, we've had research assistants all join our team. And it's like we've got this little company before we even got born. So it's been And they've awesome. been doing research with you? Yeah, they've been helping me. We've had ideation sessions. There's um, great people there with really good marketing marketing skills and a bit more creativity than I've got. Uh, so we've had a team. But I think too, um, Shannon, you touched as well, the loneliness of trying to do it all by yourself. Um, so when Lynette and I decided to collaborate, she's a scientist with a science degree and a marketing degree, which is a really odd mm. combination, but it's great. Mm. And she's specialised in skincare products but in the microbiome epigenetics field so she's been doing research i think with qut actually on some of that work so we just went oh let's join forces so one and one equals four so that's that's really how we got where we are today so out of curiosity with the journey going forward at the moment you're working on the pre and pro biotics and putting it into school kids lunches yes naturally that's going to go into adults but working with Lynette is that then going to go further into the skincare side of things as well oh absolutely Sharon we've got a whole range of bio biological and microbiological based products that um, we're in the process of developing now so we're talking about foods beverages personal care and skin care. Wow. So the technology that we're working with is able to be applied across categories. So that's that's our mission is to bring that wellness into people's everyday commodities and everyday products so they can get the benefit of it and make it affordable, make it a supermarket line. So the the company is called Mal Wellness. You just said make it a supermarket line. I do believe you are talking with Woolies. Yeah, well, we. Um, I, I actually reached out. Woolworths had a um, a pitch to get to meet a buyer, and that was back in September last year when there was a big food trade show in Sydney, FIAL. So I pitched to meet the buyer, and I got a meet the buyer meeting, and so I presented our product concepts to them and they were really interested so we've been down and met with the buyers and we're in the process of submitting our products for range reviews but we're, we've got some pretty cool ideas so um the first product that we're launching it's going to have a very interactive educational conversation with children about all the things that are, are important for them to know in both sort of social responsibility the environment health and wellness how so, are you going to do that oh wow well. <laughs> online yeah uh, i can't give out all the secrets and there's a, a combination of all of those things we've come up with a very interactive co-creative platform we need to engage the schools with us um, parents can get engaged and on board with it it's going to be fun and magical for the children there's 
actually a lot of things the kids can do with our product apart from just drink it. So um, it, it's all about the messages as well. And this is where Lynette's been absolutely brilliant because she's the marketing guru and she's a really fun, creative person with the biggest heart, you know, and she's a really nice person. And so she's taken my funny little ideas and she's taken them and, and turned them into big, fantastic ideas. So so when can we see something uh, on the shelves? So we're, we're actually running our pilot production run. Um, we're talking with our production team. I'm hoping to get it this side of Easter, but it's looking like just the other side of Easter. We'll Do me a favour. When you've got it. Yes. Come and join me on Two Chicks and a Mic. Oh, absolutely. This is a Saturday program at Bay FM. Come and join me on Two Chicks and a Mic. Um, and we'll talk to the mums. Yeah, fantastic. I, I mean, that sort of a, feedback. a competition or something around it and, and just get it out there and into the marketplace because this is so good. This is so exciting. But coming back to the theme of the night, yep. which is the mindset. Mm-hmm. Now, it sounds like you've had a mindset that's been entrepreneurial for quite some time. Um, when did it start and how did it start and how do you think that you think differently? Well, I think I, I have always worked in a self-employed position. My last job at interview was for McDonald's when I was about 19. So um, I guess by default, I met and married a man in New Zealand and we started a, a beverage business and that grew to a very big business and we sold out to Coke in 2001. So um, I mean, we did a joint venture with a publicly listed company halfway through to scale up and that enabled us to scale up dramatically and um, we went from you know three or four or five employees to over 200 so that was a 13 year journey we like we were trying to annoy someone into buying us out for 13 years (laughs) (laughs) and it worked yeah um and I then decided to follow a passion so I guess I had always just never been frightened of being in that position and it's an interesting thing because Uh, one of the things that I studied in my recent studies was entrepreneurship. And I'd always thought entrepreneurs were just fearless business people. You know, that was like, they just had no fear. And it's not quite that. I think it's everything that you talked about, Cindy and Shannon and John and Monica. And I think it's about actually collecting all of those the tenacity, the the drawing on friends, the need to solve a problem, the need to control your lifestyle, that's a big motivator for me. Um, But bringing all of that in together. And one of the studies I did was actually I analysed myself and my journey and realised that I'd actually followed some of the really interesting theories of entrepreneurship, you know, the, the five steps of effectuation and things like that. And I looked back and I went... I did that. I used what I had in my own control. Um, I drew on my friends as a crazy patchwork quilt. Um, I got people to commit to helping me. You know, I've I've followed these theoretical steps without even realising it. Mm. So I actually went down that track and analysed 
my own behaviours over Is the last few years. Is this because you were doing uh, in your yeah. MBA? Yeah. So that was one of the questions in the MBA? No, it was a, a, a study I undertook that uh, we, we had an opportunity to do, you know, uh, choose some of our own studies and, and papers that we wanted to write. So I decided to actually look at my business plans. I mean, I picked up the things I didn't do that perhaps I could have done better but I compared it to the theory of entrepreneurship and there was a, a lot of stuff that all of us would be doing by default that's actually been synthesised into theory. Um, it's really interesting. It would be too. Mm. So but it's, I, it's quite an interesting aspect of that because one, one of the things, whenever I find myself in conversations with people about the entrepreneurial mindset or the way of thinking, it's only a few moments before the what I call the R word comes up and somebody says, oh, it's all about being able to deal with risk. Um, and to which my response is, well, yeah, but actually it's really about being able to recognise and mitigate mm. risk mm. rather than just being fearless. You know, so that's, it's, it's, that's kind of what you're saying, isn't it, really? Uh, absolutely. And I think, too, and I, I guess, you know, these two lovely ladies sitting next to me, Shannon and Cindy, look about 12. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm closer to 60 than 50. So uh, certainly experiencing those challenges and pressures and you know I've woken up in the middle of the night and gone oh my god how am I going to pay that little old lady ten dollars you know I owe her ten dollars and I've woken up in the morning and I'm worried and there is no little old lady it's just all the credit has manifested into this really kind little old lady um, so you learn to understand that's part of the journey and to manage it with a notebook by your bed or just friends and mentors and people to you know share those challenges with but it's about recognizing it and planning in advance I mean I now know all of the yucky bits ahead of me in my new journey and Lynette and I both have experience but we're not we're not scared of it we just know we have to manage sort of growing pains and all those things we have to find money we have to do this we you know it's I, I sometimes joke that you haven't lived until you stared down the the barrel of having to meet next week's payroll oh, yeah. God. <laughs> so i trained racehorses for 15 years that was the passion i chose to follow when i exited the beverage industry and honestly i had 60 horses in work and 16 full-time staff what was i thinking it was a it was about a twenty thousand dollar wage bill every week <laughs> you know there was rent wages feed were imperative and yeah if if it was one of those things that you you just have to step up there is no we can't do it you have to step up and make things happen and you've exited out of the, the racing industry. You could have potentially just sort of kicked your, your feet back, put, up, put them up on a stool and said, yeah, I think I'm, I'm done, I'm okay, I'm just going to chill and go on holidays. But you didn't. No. Well, one of my owners that I trained for, they had found this concept of pre and probiotics for horses and um, they had looked at starting a business but for their own family reasons couldn't and or they start, you know, they were founders of the business they couldn't run it and um yeah we trialed the product and it worked and i just simply filled up my ute and i drove out one day and I went right what do i do now <laughs> just start knocking on stable doors and selling it and then build, bringing people in to help me do that and grow the business that way and yeah I, I always say to people i think one of the things is to start in your comfort zone Start in your own backyard. Start with the people that will trust you and t 
take a risk with you or take you on board and then you can expand out in sort of like a rippling effect in mm. the river. Um, that's how I find it suits that's, me. That, I, that's great advice, I think. That's, it's really solid because, you know, often you hear this thing about, oh, you've got to get outside your comfort zone. Well, eventually, yes, you're going to, but you have to start somewhere. And if you're not comfortable about where you're starting, well, you're probably not going to start, you know, is the real, reality of it. So, no, I think that's fantastic mm. advice. That's really good. Yeah. But uh, with regard to the current business then, so you're just at, you're just at the point of getting it to the to market. Yeah. Yes. So we've we've formulated. Um, I've been to meet, and we've got our contract packing company all organised. Um, so I met with the label makers today, and we came up with some really cool designs and ideas and innovative things that we're going to do. So this is that part where it's getting real, and you're like, oh, <laughs> yeah, Cindy. <laughs> See, I find that uh, really funny is you're saying now this is where it's getting real. Yep. I'm figuring it got real two and a half years ago when you decided that you were going to go on this journey. Close to crunch time. Yeah, yeah I this think is crunch. Probably up until about six weeks ago I could have gone, oh, no, I'll just go through, must get a job. You know, I could have just walked because the work hadn't become... Um, Physically real. Oh, okay. Now it's real. Now I, we're branded, we're done. People have invested time, money and effort in helping me get here. I mean, absolutely no doubt it's going to happen. Like, it's, it's so exciting. But it's also that leap of faith now. It is time to jump off the cliff and go to market and walk our talk and live live the values, live everything that we've said we're going to do in our business and that's something that was really important for Lynette and I to align and develop. But you guys are making that... I mean, you're a serial entrepreneur. You've, you've done this business. <laughs> yeah? So you're making... I mean, and a lot of people reach that, what I call that entrepreneurial leap of faith moment when it's like, it's the go or no go. Mm. And it's just like, we've got to jump and hopefully we'll get a, a good landing, you know. And you've done all the research yeah. and you're sure the parachute's going to open, but, yeah, you know. So you're, you're doing this with a high degree of pre-information. So to what extent do you think that's helping with the current current what you're doing currently look i think um thank you john it's really been so beneficial to have been doing a master's in business and the same time of doing this journey and that was part of the motivation to look back on what i'd done and compare it to the theory and and business practices but um it's now just a situation where we know it's going to work it's time to just commit and it's it's really it, it, it's not scary it's exciting mm. it's passionate yeah, like we're fantastic. really yeah. excited i met marianne on on friday night and you could tell the excitement and the passion was just bursting out of her skin so it was like yay <laughs> come and play on the radio with us on monday because you've got a yeah. great story we, we kind of excited for the first time we walked through a shop and it'll be there on the shelf that that's what we're that's our our visualization is is walking into a supermarket or a, a, a shop and seeing our product and the next best thing will be seeing someone walking down the street drinking, drinking it, it. Yeah. yeah but to start off with it's kids yes so we identified that as the real gap in the market because it is a problem what to send in the school lunchbox and I'm one of those victims of the warm school milk. 
And someone said they thought that the abolition of school milk was the crowning achievement of the Whitlam government. <laughs> and I tend to agree. So, um, but that problem's still there. Parents still struggle, and I did as a mum, trying to be like a cool mum with a cool lunchbox for a start. So we're trying to, our product's all bright and vibrant and fun, but also just putting something in there that you feel good about giving to your children and you know it's not going to, cause any harm to and not that sorry please don't get juice does not cause harm but you're always wanting things that are really beneficial but obviously the Australian lunchbox is a challenge because it's so hot and mm. you know things come home and you're like oh I don't <laughs> really want to open in that another iteration? <laughs> yeah. so so what's interesting about that is I mean you that's your target market that you picked how much work was there involved in saying, yeah, that's the niche we're going to go for? Because clearly you could have gone for a range of potential market spaces with that. A huge amount of research, actually. I've spent a lot of time pulling markets apart and I found that there was a soup. So there was a big gap in what we call the ambient market, which is where it's shelf stable because all of the products that are there don't really meet parents' expectations. And that market's actually declining rapidly mm. in the 250 mil packaging for children. So why are we going in there? It's because um, people have moved away from it and they're going to other products like yoghurt pouches, which is growing, probiotic drinks, which are also growing. So, you know, there's definitely a, a need for something that meets that health drink and that probiotic or prebiotic um, need. I mean, that's why mums like to give children yoghurt because it's good for their tummies, but it doesn't really hang out well in the lunchbox. No, no. Um, so it's about getting that need met and bringing back, um, bringing back to a beverage that kids like. That's brilliant. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We'll be back in, in just a moment and we're going to talk further with Monica uh, about the whole entrepreneur's journey. It's a fascinating evening, isn't it? This is Bay, this is Bay FM 100.3. You need the right. This is Bay FM 100.3, Searchlight and the Entrepreneur's Journey, and we have an absolute party happening in the studio. We've got so many ladies, and it is absolutely wonderful. So far, we've heard from Cindy, Shannon, Marianne, and we've also heard a little bit from the, the most amazing Monica. Now, Monica Bradley. Monica. John, you've known Monica for, for how long? Oh, a few years. We've we've kicked around. The, we've kicked. Well, I mean, we've been around the space probably about the same amount of time when we uh, bump into each other with monotonous frequency at various events and all that kind of, kind of stuff. But uh, you say Ma Monica's monotonous? No, no, no. Really? Monotonous frequency. I say <laughs> Monica monotonous. Never in a month of Sundays. No, trust me on that one. Um, no, Monica is incredibly interesting. Incredibly interesting. Yeah, and Monica. So. We've been having some great discussions while the mics were, were off in, in the studio here and all that sort of thing. So, uh, but maybe before we drill into some of the stuff we've been talking about and particularly talking about Shio, maybe you could just give us a quick thumbnail sketch of your background and what you've been doing and how you got to where you are today. Oh my God. Oh. Um, I just followed my gut. 
So I probably need some of your microbiome, right? Um, I was just blessed that I grew up in a, fa- a big family. I have seven brothers. My mum was a social entrepreneur, although we didn't have that word for it back then. She was just the lady that got stuff done in the neighbourhood or in the suburbs. We grew up, grew up at Upper Mount Cravat, just on, you know, not far from here, up the, the other end of the south side of Brisbane. And my mum was a social entrepreneur. My dad had been like a cricketer, but he worked in the public service. But we just had a very, my mum had a very interesting approach to life. We were natural from day one. Um, so we grew up eating stuff out of our backyard. My dad was a great gardener, so he made all our fruit and veggies. Um, and we, my mum always had people in the house. So there was eight of us, but there was always other people. And we, that was just normal to us. And the other people were always like a bishop or a union leader or, a, you know, she was just always meeting people that were trying to solve problems in the world and she would invite them to our house and we would share food and they would have long conversations and us eight kids would just run around and listen. So I kind of thought that was just normal. We had big maps of the world up on the walls and we'd read the newspapers and mum and dad would tell us about what was going on in places. So we kind of grew up incredibly engaged in the world, even though we were at sort of Nagel Street at Upper Macrovat and we went to the local Catholic school and we went there with a whole bunch of combination of Lebanese kids that had come out after the 8067 incursion and the other side was full of, you know, our neighbour on the other side was a lovely Italian man that grew his own, you know, grapes and wine and he used to give us wine after school when we'd go there and play (laughs) after lunchtime. So we had a really good upbringing and we were kind of taught no boundaries but we were taught there was a lot of social responsibility on us because as a citizen in a country, you know, I watched my father build churches, you know, when there was no church and all the men would go every Sunday and actually physically use their labour to build stuff. So I guess I was really fortunate in that I'm kind of that last generation that probably saw a lot of that stuff Mm. happen, certainly in Brisbane. Um, And so I really knew about no boundaries. Um, I went to all the way through school. I was sporty spice. Um, I was clever and sporty. Once I got to high school, though, I pushed boundaries. And I was always a bit of a boundary pusher. But, you know, I was kind of that combination of the clever, naughty kid. And schools don't know what to do with clever, naughty. They know what to do with naughty, naughty. But clever, naughty, they're a struggle with you. That's the worst I think they still struggle. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of just made it through, you know, I got, not expelled, but, and, but I wasn't doing bad things. Like I wasn't, you know, harmful things. My things were all, you know, challenging. Why does that rule exist in the school? Or why have you left this bunch of kids behind? You know, you can't exclude them, you know, whether they're a different size or a different nationality or they have different stuff in their sandwiches. It didn't matter to me, but, you know, there was all these rules, particularly in private schools about, oh, you've got to have the uniform like this and like that. So I kind of defended that from a very early age. And I think that was certainly my mum, but that was the environment we grew up in. And the eight of us have all grown up to do really different but very interesting jobs, but that common sense of social responsibility is important. So I had my first job at 13. I forged my birth certificate so I could go and <laughs> get a job at a local grocery store because I just was, I wanted, I, I was sick. My mum would always say to me, oh, you can't do that, we can't afford it, right? And so I thought, oh, I'll fix that. <laughs> I'll do that. So I, I went out and got... um got a job and I've had I've worked ever since and I absolutely love the idea of of work not for the money but this whole function that you can go into the world and do some stuff and solve some problems and chat to some people and organize things in a different way and then you get rewarded for it and like it seemed to me to be way too much fun to get paid for but you know I went from there to Hungry Jacks um, did that all the way through school sometimes used to wag school to work <laughs> it's a really 
really weird concept, but I just loved it. And so kind of by the age of about 15 and a half, I was running kind of whole shifts and doing rostering and learning how food process, you know, the whole, I really was just a sponge for how things work. I really love to understand how do you, how do you know how much chicken to have or how many burgers to have? And so, you know, when you ask questions as a young person, I was thought I was lucky that in life I always had good sort of leaders and teachers that would help me. And so then I, I kind of graduated from school, actually got a really good mark, uh, but had no idea what I wanted to do because I just knew the world was interesting. But I didn't really seem to fit like as a lawyer or an accountant or a doctor or any of those things. And, you know, what I secretly harboured a joy to do was to be either on radio or television because I love talking and performing. But I never dared tell anyone because I'd sort of always thought only attractive people did that. And I never, it's interesting to say that no. now. As a, as a haven't, you heard the saying, haven't you heard the saying, like, you've got a face for radio? <laughs> Really? <laughs> um, no, no, no. But, but it's interesting, though, isn't it? Industry. That you kind of sometimes it takes you a whole life cycle before you come back to things that you really. And now I spend an incredible amount of time communicating and helping people, you know, find find their message. So I kind of left school. I actually did enrol in university to do a science degree, um, but it was a science degree in home economics, and I was doing it because my two girlfriends were doing it, um, <laughs> and so that was my kind of decision I made. Both of them went on to be nutritionists, and it's actually been a really good degree for them, but. About week six, when it, the the book list came out and said I needed an apron and some knives, I thought this is probably not for me. And so I went back in and just kept working. I travelled to North Queensland. I did a gap year, um, and and somewhere along that, I you know I ran hotels. I was the school's banking officer for the Commonwealth Bank. Um, I ran a sports club. There was nothing I couldn't turn my ha- my hand to. But you know, about a year into that, my mum came to Cairns and said. You've got a lot of brains in that head of yours. Where you, The life you're living now is where you need to end up, but you need to make something of yourself. So you need to come back to Brisbane and get a proper job. So she didn't think anything I was doing was proper. Um, and ironically, she got me a job in a as a shipping clerk for a German trading house. And at first, everyone would go, oh, Mike, it's not going to last here, right? She'll be 30 seconds and out the door. But what it actually was was... The shipping clerk was just a paperwork, but that paperwork moved money and millions of dollars worth of commerce around the world. And I was just, again, blessed with a great set of managers that I would ask these questions like, what is a, what is a phytosanitary certificate? Why does the beef go in that size carton? And why is this refrigerated? And why is that frozen? And why, why is the John Deere tractor parts always come from this place in Wisconsin? So I just kept asking these questions. And, you know, within about six months, I progressed from being the shipping clerk um, kind of into a role, uh, a development role, and they asked me to join a global program because um, it was a family-owned company, but they had, you know, probably 10,000 employees around the world. But again, I was really lucky. The owner came to christen a ship in the port of Brisbane. We had these beautiful ships that had, like, red hulls on them, and he came to Brisbane, and I was organising the function, and so I got to meet him. And he was, like, one of the, you know, billionaires that ran the company, and I just started chatting. And he goes, you really, oh, I like you. You should be in our global program. So the next week I got this note from and then the local boss, I don't think, was very impressed because it was like, who is this little upstart that's decided? <laughs> so the next thing, they flew me to Singapore. So I went to Singapore, London, Hamburg, and Dubai. I was like 23 years old. Wow. And they just gave me um, a masterclass in each of the disciplines. So they taught me how insurance for global trade worked. They taught me how to finance global trade. So I went and worked with the bankers and the letters of credit and how you know people hedge it. They taught me how the trading division worked so I could work out why people and what were the 
triggers in a marketplace to buy and sell products on a global basis. Um, so I, I went through all of these modules and came back to Australia kind of at the age of 24, having, again, this kind of global experience. And then they sent me on a few jobs in Australia. They sent me to Western Australia and said, can you start your own start your own business? Go and find a place in the marketplace, have some resources, and here's... Like, they gave me... It was, like, in 1989. I think it was a pitiful amount of money, like, here's $50,000 and see what you can do with it. And within Are six weeks... We have $50,000, go and start a business. We don't care what it is. Just find a niche and just do yeah. it. And in between wow. being, you know, relentlessly bullied by the men in the shipping industry and the trading industry um, that used to sort of suggest that I'd have to go onto the, the ship and actually go down to the hull with the live sheep or lambs or cattle or whatever, and then they'd send the sheep and cattle down on top of me and my red bows and my shiny shoes, which was just hilarious. Anyway, I went through that in Perth. I came to Sydney, took on a big role in Sydney where I, cause I was starting to realise where they made money and I said, oh, we've got to talk to all these commodity boards and we've got to reinvent how this commodity business works because it's just not working. It's all about price taking. And so I sat down and learnt the wool board, the wheat board, the grain board and worked out how all their dynamics worked and then started to make friendships with them because I was pretty good at making friends. And then I'd go out and have lunch with them and I'd say, how did, what about this? What about that? And over time, I would secure all of their business. And so they'd never seen anyone sort of work out how to do these relations before. So we did that and then they said, well, we need you to go to New York because we've got this team up there and they don't know what they're doing. So at 20, it was nearly 25, I said, yeah, okay. So I got on a plane, went to New York City. They gave me a team of 40 people. <clears throat> Excuse me, they were all men and not one of them was like the youngest was like 45 years old. And they were like not happy to see me. Like who's this Who's this upstart Aussie that, you know, up here trying to tell us what to do? We've been trading here forever. And um, they were pretty good at bullying because it was kind of like the Wolf of Wall Street but for commodities. And the Wolf of Wall Street is very real. So I was kind of, I went into that kind of, you know, quite hostile environment. But again, I thought, you know, I'm here. What can I do? I'm just here to sort of... So I just kept kicking along, making a few friends. But you're the manager. Yeah, but... And they're answerable to you. Well, my my actual crowning glory was, which has always been the secret, is if uh, I helped them do something where they were stuck, right? So about... About a month into me being there, there was an I uh, was a fr- uh, a frost in Florida, and the entire orange juice concentrate for the East Coast was done. And they all were sitting on these contracts because it used to happen every year. Well, not the freezing, but the orange juice contracts, and they all just froze. They went, oh, my God, all my supplies gone. What are we gonna do? And I didn't know any better, so I just said, Well, let's work it out. Well, where else can we get orange juice from? Where can we do do do? And so actually, I rang a friend in Australia because I had all these contacts with all these boards and said, well, What do you what are you guys doing on the juice concentrate? They go, Yeah we don't only freeze the juice because we send in the domestic market, blah, blah, blah. I go, could you freeze it? And they go, yeah. And they said, how much would we have to make it if you would freeze it? And so this guy said, oh, well, let me make a few calls and I'll fax you back. So it was back in the fax day. <laughs> and uh, about, you know, about a day later, he faxed me back and said, oh, yeah, if you paid us this, thinking that it was just a ridiculous amount of money. So I went back to the traders and they go, oh, yeah, at least then I can give all my clients 10% of what I'd promised them and then we can we can unwrite it from there. So anyway, I can't kind of then solved the problem for them and so then they quite liked me and within about another year we had done a whole bunch of work but I kept saying this process this system that we're operating is broken because I had been in Australia and I'd been to these beautiful farms and I'd watched how farmers and agricultural growers in Australia had put their life into making safe products and really doing great husbandry and growing great crops with you know minimal um, chemistry and then they would go into boxes and be put in shipping containers and then 
traders in New York City that didn't really care what was in the box were moving these products around just to make them an underlying price to make themselves money. Mm. And then they would end up at the back door of like a, gr- a beef grinding plant to be made into hamburgers for Burger King, who deeply cared about the quality of the product. But that shipping container might have been blah, 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 traded about a hundred times um, before it got to the Andrews. So I finally, about, you know, I guess a year in, I started to realise who the end users of these products were and I, I just started ringing them. And so I went to Florida and said, who buys all the beef for Burger King? And they said, oh, you know, Joe down there at this company called RSI. So, so I, went, I just knocked on the door, a bit like you, didn't really know how to, how to not do stuff, and said, look, Joe, I'm, well, my name's Monica, and, you know, I understand how the Australian, we, you know, 80% of the Australian beef turns up at your back door. You know how it gets here? And he said no. And ironically, about two weeks before, there'd been an E. coli outbreak in North America. Turns out it was actually lettuce, but all the fast food chains have been absolutely freaked out because this E. coli in the food chain was really bad. So all of a sudden they'd got all their owners were coming in saying, what are we doing about the supply chain? And so I said, well, we can build a much better supply chain for you. So that started a conversation that then 18 months later resulted in 20 they just declared, I brought them all to Australia, said, come and have a look at our farms, come and have a look at how we ship this stuff. Let's put, bring some changes to how you do this because you're wasting money because everyone's in, over-insuring and then other people are under-insuring. So I got them and, you know, eight, it took us 18 months they did a direct sourcing agreement and we bought for the first time ever from five places in Australia where the farmers didn't any longer have to keep selling. They could actually supply this great product on an ongoing basis. And those relationships still exist today. So um, the traders in New York, you know, sent out death warrants for me. Uh, but, you know, we've got to be that. the next question. Yeah, How was that relationship? So, <laughs> so then we went through a few other industries and did that. So I guess for me that was kind of being an entrepreneur as opposed mm-hmm. to an entrepreneur. Um, and But New York taught me a lot about the world, right? You know, like as a 25, I was in New York from when I was 25 and I came home when I was 35. And I only came home because I started meeting women that were 10 years older than me. And I realised New York and those cities that are ultra competitive, when you play and you go to play, they change you forever. And they turn you in because you've got to, you you can't help, even though you start natural and caring, there's elements of competition that just get in your blood. Um, And I didn't want to become, and most of those women that were 10 years older than me were medicating on something, either drugs or alcohol or shopping. Um, They all had fractured relationships, like very few of them had like happy lives, but they were really wealthy, right? Mm -hmm. So it was like, Again, it was how do you define success? I was a girl from up Cravat. You know, I, I'd had all these great experiences and I was earning a pretty okay wage. I now know I was only half of what the guys I was working for were earning, right? Um, so, again, institutional discrimination. But, you know, I didn't know what to ask for, so I didn't, you know, I just got on. I thought they were paying me a fair wage, so I just took it. Um, but these women weren't happy. So at 34, I remember going to the managing director and I said, I think it's time I went home. And he said, oh, oh oh, yeah, I get that. Yeah, you probably want to settle down. I go, yeah, I'd like to settle down, you know, in my hometown. He goes, okay, well, so we'll, you know, we'll work out a job for you. And I go, no, I think I'm just over. I think I'm just done. I think this is kind of the end of the journey. And they were a bit surprised. So I came home to Australia. I'd been living in New York for the best part of nine years. I had an American accent. Um, 
in that time, the interweb and it had just exploded. We had the first part of the dot-com era. So I was actually sitting in, like, chat rooms with this big cable connecting a very big laptop to a very big sort of phone cable and going into chat rooms and finding, like, Australians in Brooklyn. I was like, oh, my God, the world's going to change. So I came back to Brisbane and I thought, oh, my God, this is our opportunity. It was, like, 1998. And I said, now I can do all these global jobs from Brisbane. This is going to be really exciting. <laughs> so I turned up and I, you know, I, I think I waited about a week and then I started looking for jobs. Um, and so I started pulling up to all these recruitment agencies. For the next six months, I did 100 interviews. Mm-hmm. I all, always made it to the, to the last two. I always met the managing director and I didn't get any of the jobs. They wouldn't have known what to do with you. They, the, eventually the recruiter said to me, you'll have to go to Sydney or Melbourne. And I said, I've already lived in Sydney. I actually don't want to go there. I want to live in Brisbane. I said, what's the problem? And they said... qualified. Well, no, they said that you scare them. Mm. They said, you know more. These guys are like 40 years old. You're 35. You know way more about how the world works. They've got their best job they'll ever have in their life. And they're quite happy to sit there for the next 25 years. Mm. So if they're the managing director of a company, they don't want to go anywhere. They And they don't need anyone disrupting them. So... I still didn't believe them, so I figured the problem was I didn't have a degree, you know, because as women, there's got to be something wrong with me, right? <laughs> can't, oh, can't be the God. answer. So yes. I went back to uni, uh, to QUT, and I was fully prepared to do an undergraduate degree. Thankfully, because I was in the undergraduate briefing night, the um, the dean of the business school came over and thought I was a parent of one of the children. <laughs> <laughs> and I, when I said to him I was going to enrol in undergraduate, he goes, what the hell? And then we sat down and he said, come and see me. And a week later I went in and saw him and he said, you don't need an undergraduate degree with that experience. What you really need is an MBA. So actually I, I then sat down and did an MBA over the next two years and in between that started five internet companies. The first one was just trading domain names. So on a Monday I would think of five interesting names for websites. <laughs> they were called websites back then. And on a Friday I would sell five websites and some some weeks I'd make, you know, twenty or $30,000. Some weeks I'd make $20, right? But I just had this process of how we do it. And then I was just like you with your MBA, just insatiable because all of a sudden I was getting all this confidence because all this stuff that I thought was kind of just luck, I realised was actually quite a pat. I was doing all these things like Porter's Five Forces. Oh, I know how to enter a new market because I've done it 10 times. And I was actually following five steps, but I didn't know there was five steps, right? So it was really cool for me because it was like a lot of... And I was... The other people in the course really liked talking to me because I could talk to them about anything like I knew how John Deere tractors were made and you know I knew you know what happens to the, all the parts of the different of animals and I know what triggers market signals in commodity markets to change and how currencies move and you know they're kind of irritatingly trivia sort of pieces of information until people want to solve a problem and then you go oh yeah well I kind of know how to do that or if I don't I could call someone um, so I, I ended up graduating Um, top of that MBA class which was another thing I see a lot in women is when we get our chance god do we take it you know we just really drive we're not just satisfied with just ticking off the box it was getting it and also I had the because I was a little bit older the lecturers quite liked me and so I had a lot of interaction with them and two of them actually found me kind of part-time work to do one of them was a crazy project where they hired me to be um, an internet advocate to regional Australia and so the department of uh, in Canberra 
hired me to go out into regional Australia and hack together experiments that would prove that regional people could use the internet and change their lives. <gasps> so I did. I, I, I got to design the projects and then they gave me a little bit of money, not very much. Um, and we did things like we proved that we could send webcam pictures of cattle in sale, you know, on someone's property in the Gulf country of the Carpentaria and we could send those via a very bad modem and a great big solar panel um, or and uh, maybe a diesel generator even. Sorry about that sustainability pebble. But it was like the late 90s, right? Um, and then we sent the signal and uh, elders um, who were like the, the buyers of cattle in Western Australia got to see it and we showed them some data and we the question was, would you buy this without actually because it was this fallacy that no cocky would ever buy cattle without seeing them with his own two eyes. And so we put did these experiments. And, of course, the guys in Perth said, oh, my God, this is so much better. I'd much rather buy them. Like this in my air-conditioned office than being in stinky middle of Australia in 100-degree heat. So we did those experiments. But when I finished that... Um, all the consulting firms came chasing me because they said, oh, she's, she now has a brain in the head. We can see that. Oh, now. <laughs> right. she's gone to a uni, yeah. right? Someone said that she's okay. And um, because I'd had this international experience, I was sitting in Brisbane and I also kind of understood in those days they were looking for people who understood supply chain management and customer relationship management. Well, I've done, I'd sold anything to anyone. So I knew how to sell. I knew how the world worked and I knew how supply chains work. So um, I had a lot of offers when I left and I was like, oh, I don't know, you know, but they all looked a bit stuffy. And actually, I got accepted by two of the four, two of the big four firms whose names people would know. And actually, again, I just had these beautiful angels that turn up in my life. And then I had an offer from a random company at the time that was called Sausage Software. And I loved them because they, they were democratising technology. And you could actually um, write to them and they would send you a box that would arrive at your house with a floppy disk in it that really <laughs> that shows my age. But there was everything in that box that would allow you to make a website. And I was thought, oh, this is going to change the world, so this will fix it. But when I was, I was really tempted to take one of the big big two jobs because they were a lot of money they were willing to pay and the sausage so, so you know was just you know pretty average money but as I was walking out with one of the partners from one of these big firms um, it was a woman and she said to me whatever you do don't take this job she said you have a remarkably you have a contribution to make and if you if you get into one of these firms they will turn you into a clone they will take all the best parts of you like your personality and your creativity and your entrepreneurship and they will beat it out of you and you'll have to become part of you know what they define as success and that was the first time anyone had ever said to me um how do you define success you know, like, it's a weird thing, but now I talk a lot about it as a country. You know, how does Australia define success? So, no, I went to work for Sausage Software, but it turns out they then got bought by some IT services company. <laughs> and I ended up on the bench, as we call it, in consulting land most of the time because they put me in the strategy practice. And it turns out people that want to just put a lot of project managers doing IT don't have a lot of strategy work. So I actually got to... I used to spend my time surfing on the net trying to find really interesting work I'd like to do. So I did. I found a project that was like a $20 million project with the federal government for the for under John Howard for um, his office, the Prime Minister's and Cabinet's office. And um, it was actually... A, they wanted a team to quietly do a project that said, if we wanted welfare recipients to actually progress, how would we redesign the welfare system and what technology would we add to it? So wow. I took it to my boss and said, oh, I'm going to do this. This is a really great project. And they go, no, nah, McKinsey's got all that work. 
Oh, and I said, what do you yeah. mean? And they go, no, this is not for us. There's, there is specialist companies in the world that will get all that work. And I said, yeah, but, you know, we've got all this great stuff and I could do this how I do it. Da, da, da. She goes, it doesn't really matter. She said, and so I, I bugged her enough that she said, okay, I will give you one day to write this proposal mm. and then you're done, right? She said, because these guys are going to be writing, you know, 50, 100 pages of blah, blah, blah about how they're going to solve it. So, again, I had to work out within one day how would I find out an approach, a proposal, and then put it together. So I realised... I had to just put in a non-compliant bid so anyone knows how bidding works. So I had three friends at the time that were working in Logan and they were working with people that were marginally disadvantaged. Some were, were migrants, some that were women that were escaping domestic violence, irony. Um, so I went down and said, I rang them and I said, can I come and sit down and talk to you guys for a couple of hours? Because I really need to understand this sector. I know there's lots going on. Um, and so I sat down for a couple of hours and met those people, really learnt these appalling conditions that we were making people go through. And then I said to them, um, you know, you've got some customers here. Do you think I've got to do this project, you know, put in the submission, but I don't want it to be a fake project. I'd actually like to actually help these people. So do you think any of them would mind if I didn't use their names, if they went on camera or they, could they give me some comments? So they went outside and asked and like these eight people said, yeah, we'll talk to it. Yeah, yeah, let's fix this system. <laughs> and we didn't, it was before we even had cameras in our phones. So I actually had taken a little, you know, movie camera, like a video camera that was about this big that we had. And um, so I just sat down and did interviews with them. And then I went back to the office. And because we'd been sausage software, I had all these great little guys that were good at cutting and slicing me videos. So what I ended up producing was like a sort of seven minute video that talked about hair are three real people on the journey of welfare. Hair is why none of the programs that service them today are failing them. Hair's what their trajectories are going to be in life and what their parents' trajectories was. Here's some of the ways that we could use technology to fix those problems and give them mass personalised service that would improve their lives. And here's what you need to paint. And I think partly they must have just been... A, so I remember spending almost as much time... Remember when you did discs? Um, you could design, like, a, pla a, a label that would yes. go on the disc? Yes. I remember thinking, I've got to get their attention because otherwise it'll go in the bin, right? <laughs> so Because I don't have 500 pages. So I thought, oh, what if I put it in a box and they'll think there's pages in there? And then I actually designed this little label, which these guys are good. Anyway, cut a long story short, I, I got shortlisted for that alongside Cap Gemini, McKinsey and someone else. <clears throat> I flew to sit to Melbourne... Uh, to, to Canberra to do the interview you, but they insisted that I couldn't do it because they'd have to put someone more senior in because I wasn't, you know, who, how do I know to deal with Canberra? And I said, well, you know, I've done this non-compliant bit. I've got us to the three in the, you know, out of Australia. So anyway, we went to the thing, the guy started to pitch and then I just sort of said to him, I think I better take over here. <laughs> and because they were very, they kept directing, they said, we're really interested in where did you find these people and what permission did you have? Blah, blah. So I won that piece of work against all those companies. And so then I started commuting between, so that was a two year project. Um, and I fought within my own company to actually lead that project. They again wanted to put some more senior person in. And I said, no, but you know what that taught me? So I already knew how the world worked from a commerce perspective. I spent 18 months and we, documented 182 government programs that were servicing supposedly people that were, that were not, you know, to help them. And it was so appallingly structured that the thing that surprised me the most that we get any outcomes. Mm. Not that we don't get good outcomes. 
there were just flaws everywhere. So that mapping exercise then allowed my creativity and then we sat down with a group of design. Now it would be called design thinking and we do design. Back then we didn't have those words, but we just actually sat down and said, how do we make this people friendly? What would people need? We need to join it up. We need people to have a companion on the journey. We need to redefine success because success is not how many people are in the program. It's what changes in their lives. You have to assume people are part of a family unit. They're not individuals. So a whole bunch of stuff changed. So we did this great two-year project. Everyone, you know, the recommendations were quite bold, um, like get rid of all the current structures, i.e. Centrelink, you know, family services. <laughs> you have to redefine. You know, if someone's in, if someone's in trouble, they do not go, think, oh, I better go to Centrelink, right? Mm. No, they turn up at the Red Cross or Lifeline, you know. And so our project said we'll use technology to devolve the system down to these re- people that genuinely are in community already doing great work and let them manage case manage these uh, people that are in their community that they already probably know and help them to outcomes but everything was outcome focused and people got rewarded because they helped people get to journey points and so that was a fascinating project and that taught me the machinery of government I met eight ministers I met all the policy advisors and in that two years I got a master class in how the machinery of government works or doesn't work that's that's an amazing story and so I mean so with that with that background that sort of entrepreneurial training and then getting exposed to all that amazing stuff that you did how does how does that link to CEO today what 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 well, can we have a, a a little music and come back talking about CEO I just Monica I just want to clone you <laughs> <laughs> I, I literally I want to clone you so I join CEO like, and there'll be lots of room for CEO clients <laughs> exactly well, that's true but not, right now I'm creating an army to clone and that's the beautiful thing about this movement we are creating an army of women that are just using common sense to change their world but the people that women touch families families touch other people and we're slowly recreating how we define success in this country we'll talk more about that in just a moment but you can see that happening in this studio right now it's amazing this is bay fm 100.3 searchlight and the entrepreneur's journey We'll be back with Monica Bradley. How appropriate is that? Hunters and collectors, throw your arms around me. I think we're throwing our arms around a whole bunch of people, including people who are on just embarking, just embarking on their entrepreneurial journey. Hasn't tonight so far been absolutely fascinating? The journey and the theme that's running through it constantly with the mindset, the entrepreneurial mindset is amazing. Now, before we went to uh, Hunters and Collectors, I said to Monica, I want to clone you, and I really do. All of the ladies in this room want to clone Monica because she is just incredible. A little while ago, uh, when we were talking with Cindy uh, in regards to the Sycamore School, you, you gave some great advice, and in your role and what you do, and, and honestly... Monica is is the most amazing person and as you would have gathered by now if she doesn't know them they're not worth knowing Um, (laughs) she has connections all over the place and they're valuable they're friends and she can open doors now Monica said to Cindy 
I can help you to scale up with the school because what Cindy is doing with Sycamore School and looking after autistic children is so vitally important and there are so many parents who want this as a service, who need this as a service. You've actually got more people on your list to join the school than you've got vacancies for. So Monica, uh, when we were playing a piece of music, had something absolutely beautiful to say to Cindy. So Monica, would you like to say it? Well, there's a whole category now of investment called impact investment. And actually, um, you know, surprises me, but the Prime Ministers and Cabinet has actually just done a great study on it. And they've got some friends of mine that um, are in this business together. And they're going to really create some good policies and encourage investment into things, not just that are financially um, returnable, but actually that solve for both ecological, so climate problems, but also for more importantly for social problems, which is in your area and there's actually somewhere in Australia they estimate up to a trillion dollars that is looking for these sorts of investments so they they used to be the investors that would take either what they call capital protection or philanthropic money they'd put a big they, you know it's let's say it's a family that's made a lot of money and then they would give a great big you know like several you know billion dollars to a big institution and say right put them into shares and then whatever money that you make out of those shares every year in dividends will give away as philanthropy and what we're finding is in generation three which is people more in their 30s and 40s that are joining those family offices that are really wealthy they're like I don't want to sit around and be rich and just have all that when there's all these problems in the world that I can use this money to solve. And so they're really interested, and it's it's not at commercial terms, but they're interested in doing deals that are proper businesses solving social problems. So you can probably give them a bit of financial return or at some stage maybe pay back the capital, but what they're most interested in is what is the impact you're having in your area. So if it's, you know, um, improved outcomes where the autistic children are getting job ready, where they're requiring less um, incursions into hospitals where there's you know the parents are able to go back to work heaven forbid because the child's behavior has been modified or because we've got them on a pathway of activities and other supports you know those things are, are a real social impact that does create a financial return for our society as well so I I absolutely take my hat off to you and what they actually are looking for in this category is scalable businesses and I think what you've built is a pilot to what could be hundreds of schools across Australia. I, I just think it's remarkable. I'm so in awe of what you've done, Cindy. Thanks, Monica. <laughs> and some of the... Th like, that is just amazing. But some of the other things that you have spoken to Marianne and Shannon about so far. While we've been playing music, though, I should have had a microphone on this because the conversation has been quite incredible. And it will lead into what you want to talk about with SheEO, which is a global movement. We will get to that momentarily. But what would you like to say um, that you have said so far to the ladies in, re in regards to female entrepreneurs? Oh, in terms of female entrepreneurs, um, well... The world doesn't. The world was really designed a long time ago, in the nineteen, you know, early nineteen hundreds. We've been on this industrial age about scale and scope, and you know, it grew up in a place where there was one person that usually went out to work, and there was another person that stayed at home and raised children and did all the household duties and supply, you know, supplied the house with food and labour. Um, and our world has always said that that's free. Right? and that the person going to work is really the economic unit because they go to work and they earn money. 
um, and that money comes home and then it funds this lovely free activity of caring and and supplying. Um, And I guess what I'm seeing now is that 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 was sort of set in track in the 1900s, but we're still in a lot of ways, even though things have modernised and we've got technology, you know, we're still hindered at a very core level of our society by the things that, how they defined success back then and in their inability to, do, to actually measure or define what I would call non-financial measures of either our society or of a business. So we've gone back to things like the GDP, right? So we've been in 27 years of growth in Australia, we've had how great GDP, everyone's raving about it. Why do we have record suicide levels? You know, why do we have, um, you know, record levels of people excluded from our health systems? You know, why are there more and more growing generations of people that do not find meaningful work in our country? And why have we got women that post having a child when they re-enter the workforce are choosing jobs, hundreds of thousands of dollars below their pay grade because they're the only jobs they can find that would fit around having wider responsibilities and going to work to earn money? So... In that world, I'm back in my mum's shoes and I'm an eight-year-old sitting at the kitchen table saying, we've got this wrong because this is the problem I'm really trying to fix is how we define success. And if I start, how do we define success as a nation? Is it really GDP? You know, when, our, when we've got record, you know, ecological things that we can see in front of our faces as well, that for a long time we couldn't fix those problems because we didn't want to define them economically. Well, now, you know, the universe is defining them for us in a whole other way with, uh, you know, disasters. So I'm, I'm really on a mission to, tr- to help in these last, you know, 20 or 30 years of my working career to help try and make that right. And I've got a lot of... Now I actually don't care. <laughs> I guess 20 years ago I'd worry that someone wouldn't hire me. You know, now I know I'm absolutely unemployable. Uh, so I do a range of things. You know, I, I sit on four or five boards and I do that because the board is the most highest pinnacle you can get to help get change into organisations. Yeah. And the bigger the organisation, the better, because if I can help drive gender equality and get them to do pay gap analysis, if I can reform workplaces, if we can get clever about how we design the place of work and the craft of work and how we define success, we'll start to revolutionise revolutionise this for everyone and we'll be more successful our businesses are better we've proved that already you know Forbes magazine did a study of uh, women-led businesses and said you know a they only get four percent of the world's capital but those four percent that they get totally outperform the men and it's because they design different places they did really design very different work because we design what we know and what we know is these pain points that sit around us you know in Cindy's case it's autism in your case it's wanting to be close to your daughter and and have a workplace that you can both raise a child and have a meaningful contribution to their life and, you know, have the money that you can go on holidays and do stuff. And that meant that you couldn't find a job like that. So you designed it for yourself, you know. In your case, it's helping, you know, get animals and now children better, you know. They're real businesses. They'll produce great economic return, but you're designing them really differently to how I would have seen the scale-up tech guy come and talk to me and pitch me up about, you know, I'm going to make hundreds of millions return on my initial capital um, it's going to be we will it will these are sustainable proper businesses but I sat in investment panels with beautiful men that I respect dearly that taught me a lot about how to invest mostly because I'd spent some time after Canberra in Abu Dhabi in Dubai with the sovereign wealth funds and we got to see a lot of Silicon Valley when I came back to Brisbane I sat alongside some people and helped to get some investment going and I would see them women like these girls would come in and pitch and I would hear after they'd leave the room the men go is that really a thing thing right is that really a thing you know like in the case of cindy's i could tell you they would probably go is there really that many autistic kids really like 
surely she's never going to start a school 50 years before someone starts school no one's ever going to do that right and i go hey guys really are you kidding me right they would say you know is this really a fundable business that this woman is she's motivated by looking after a kid really is that a business isn't that a hobby right and i was just these were great guys like guys i really care about i still really like today and what i realized was they just their lived life experience is really narrow and they just weren't they didn't see the things that we saw and they didn't see what i saw as the businesses and the sparks in these women and i knew how hard these girls would go and work so i i started saying to them after they started voting no to these businesses to fund them i started saying to them okay on these women businesses when they pitch i will not let you make that decision today i want you to go home and i want you to find a woman or i want you to find someone you care about and i want you to pitch that back to them and in every case that i asked them to do that they came back the next day and said oh my god my wife said that is amazing and do you know that we've got 52 friends that have got this and oh my god her friend down the road and selling and she's not charging enough and the model should be different and oh my god there's 50 people that i could get that girl so much more work blah 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 so they would come back full of excitement that they had this new information and yet actually it was ironic how could they go through life so oblivious though they do that because women do women get it they're different though and they're different in good ways we need men in our society (laughs) because they can go and kill people that i can't right um they can go to war they can plan things and they can be ruthless for stuff that i need they can protect me and they can protect our country and i really absolutely respect that i have lots of brothers that do great jobs and they can make really tough decisions it's not about either or it's about and Mm. But the thing has been that we've had the men have been in positions of power and they have defined success in the only way they knew because they were taught by the generation above them and the generation above them. And I'm sa- what we're saying through the Shio movement and lots of movements around the world now is to say it's an and world and if we can't find funding for women through the traditional methods, we'll start our own. And, and that's what Shio does. That's exactly what Shio has done. Shio, uh, give, the, give the story behind Shio. Yeah, so similar to that that story i just explained to you i there was another person when i saw that story when i experienced that myself i realized i couldn't get enough women into these investment panels to change that so that was my first thought i just need more women right in the same way that we say let's get women more women on boards because it'll change discussion it definitely changes it but geez it takes a long time Mm. and i just didn't have enough time to do that so i started looking around the world and i i googled and actually found the founder of shio as a woman in canada called vicky saunders and ironically she had a different but similar experience to me she'd worked at jp morgan's um bank in uh, the u.s and in canada and she'd seen the discrimination against women who was who were actually a little bit different to my cohort they were actually women that were bankers and were running really big businesses and she was seeing the discrimination even in that cohort so even when the women turned up with the logical rational business plan like the man they were still not getting funded in the same way that the man they were still not getting the salaries that the men had so she saw more what i would call institutional discrimination I wasn't seeing that um, or as obviously maybe I wasn't in the institutional. So she had sat about saying, we've got to get these women funded. I, you know, I've got to get them out of this system. We can't change the system. And so she'd started Shio five years ago. Um, so I met her three years ago. So she'd had two years under her belt. And by then she'd got Canada and the United States. And she said, look, in the absence of being able to find an institutional, which just means a bank or someone with a lot of money that might fund something, um, we could distribute this because women care about this, right? 
Like in this room today, we all want to fund Cindy. You know, we all want to fund Shannon, right? We'll fund you because women get that you're solving a problem and we care about it, right? That's why equity crowdfunding does so well with women. You know, 90% of those investors are women because they see something that they want to change and they'll put their money. But we don't have hordes of money because guess what? The average woman will only have somewhere between 15 and 20 years in the workforce. We all end up at the end of our working careers with way less super than men because we took time out to that free thing, that free thing Mm -hmm. in society called raising children or caring for other people around our area. In my case, it was I left the workforce twice, uh, once to actually um, help care for my husband, my my husband's step, so my stepchildren. Um, And then secondly, when he was an ANSAT pilot and he lost his job and we moved to Dubai, I took time off from my career to actually go with him. I then got a whole new career in Dubai because I got a bit restless with being a pilot's wife. But, um, you know, you have these big career breaks. So we get back and we don't have superannuation and we have much less. So we have a lot of shame around money um, that's really prevalent in women. So anyway, um, the CEO was started in Canada by Vicky. She had two years on her when I first met her and we started talking. I said, I'd love to do this in Australia. She said, great, let's do it. The way the model works is you you need to find 500 women and we call them, and it is women because we want women to back other women because, you know, we have a lot of ambassadors. I love them. Um, but I asked them ambassadors to find a woman they really care about and and sponsor them into the CEO program and it works with two two it's a two-sided marketplace so we have to raise some money so we can invest in these great ventures um, and the way we do that is by we getting 500 women together and they put in eleven hundred dollars each um, that creates a half a five hundred thousand dollar fund each year so we just fundraise once a year the 500 women come together put the eleven hundred together that creates a fund on the other side we've got some great tech so the women are very tech savvy and we ask female entrepreneurs like your good selves to come in and apply for the money but we don't ask them the usual questions like you would on the shark tank we say tell me about the problem that you're solving and just describe it put it on a video write it in 100 words and tell me why you're the best person to solve this problem and tell me if we gave you money interest-free money, how much better and what impact would it have? They're pretty much the three questions you answer, right? And then those little snippets in the videos go out to the 500 women and then it's total transparency democracy. They just go in and they listen and they they look at each venture, they hear your story and then they do two things. One is they vote on a traffic light as to whether it's something that they think should be funded, just in their opinion, doesn't need to have any other more justice. And then they're asked to go in and say, can you help this woman? So what actually happens is the 200 or 300 women that apply all get individualised feedback from 500 women, a lot of them very senior executives, some of them are grandmothers, some of them are 14-year-old girls. But all of the feedback is really vital and um, they get the feedback. And then we just go into the system and we find top 20 and then those top 20 um, that make it to the next round then have to do a little bit. They get a coaching session that we run all run online around financials. They need to put a financial workbook together. Um, for, some, for some women, it'll be the first time they've done a proper set of forecasting. There's no shame. Everyone's encouraged to participate. And that we get those next 20 women to the stage where they've got you know a reasonable they can tell their story both in numbers as well as literally um it helps them forecast and helps them work out what they need and how they might grow and then that goes back out to the 500 women and we vote again like we did last weekend and we've just chosen well we don't know but the, the top five are then um selected those top five then will share the pool of money that we've raised the money goes into those ventures as um uh, as debt because women are better with debt than equity. 
Um, so, and the debt goes in there interest-free, so you never pay interest, and you pay it back every quarter for five years. So it's a nice patient amount of money. Mm-hmm. So it's meant to be that amount of money that gives you breathing space, that lets you go out and do that bit of risky bit that you've got to do, like you would be funding your six months of operation maybe. In your case, it might be getting your samples to market. In your case, it might be, you know, productizing your system. So you might have some other women like you that you could put into a network of five or six people that could do what you do. Um, so it's just patient money that helps you to build that. But really important things happen. The five women get together, that we send them on a retreat, which I'm about to plan in Brisbane, and then we bring in this wonderful woman from Silicon Valley that's that has mentored all of the big startup firms, and she takes these five women on a really personal journey, and they explore themselves, they find their things that are great about them, things they're not, and then they do this weird thing where they have to decide amongst the five women how they split the money. And there's only two rules. They can't split it evenly and everyone has to get it. <laughs> and this very woman-y thing happens, right? So in the first round, they, they all tell their stories to each other. And these are five women that maybe have never met each other before and they're all telling, talking about their businesses and their why. Every business has to be connected to the sustainable development goals. We did that from day one because it's really important that we look holistically and that was the only benchmark we could find. The women tell their story and then this thing happens. Like if I'm woman number three, I go, oh, I shouldn't get any money. You should get all the money, right? Oh, Cindy, yours is better. You're much more worthy than me. I can't possibly take money. Oh, Oh my God, we should give more, right? So, you know, we used to call it in our family the burnt chop. Like, oh, we'll have to, we'll we'll keep the burnt chop and let someone else eat, right? (laughs) Women do that all the time. Oh, no, please not me. You're more worthy than I am, right? So, they get through all that. And then this Silicon Valley lady really pumps them up and go, no, you're all worthy. And then they do the reverse and they go, well, I need it all, right? You need it all. But then they actually, so somewhere in the middle, they land and they get funded, right? Um, And and it gets paid back over. We have then the, um, the summit, everyone comes together and celebrates and we get to know who those five women are but the 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 way thing i like about the fund is if we invest in that fund for five years because the women pay the money back it becomes what i call a perpetual fund Mm -hmm. so after five years my work is done and that money will go on every year to change the lives of other entrepreneurs for the rest of our lives so we can pass it on to our kids our grandkids um so it's a beautiful so it's designed by a woman right it's Mm. not designed to be a quick up up and go it's a long fund and the other thing that happens is once you once you become so once you're a venture and you've applied um we have a cohort then where every month we get together and we talk and we mix these two cohorts together because guess what a lot of these women that contribute eleven hundred dollars actually are either from quite wealthy families or they're working women but they have some capital and they're really interested in helping and supporting women in other ways so the women in the network the ventures get funded in other ways um the other thing they all do is we have we teach everyone in the network to do two things hashtag it's radically generous so everyone has to give right that's the way we create more in the world is by we giving um so everyone gives but we have an ask we also teach women to ask women are great at giving not so good at asking so the five ventures particularly every month have to have an ask back to those 500 women and I've seen remarkable things happen like last year a a girl got funded um, a a company called Neighboretics and they do a great thing with social media and um, creating insights for developers and and city halls and and councils Um, and they were already growing quite fast but they had an ask in that they wanted to enter the US market and they'd been quoted $250,000 for someone to write what we call the go-to-market strategy effectively how would they enter the US so someone wanted to 
$250,000 and six months to write it. So they put that ask into the SHEO portal, which is a global portal. So even though we've got a local chapter, we're connected globally to all the other chapters around the world. And within a day, a woman that is an activator out of San Francisco had said, oh my God, I've just been looking at your website. I really like this ask. I, you know, I can help you with that. You know, I wrote the go-to-market strategy for Facebook. And I'm like, oh, so this woman was like 58 years old. She'd done this stuff. She goes, and by the way, I've got this really nice house in Silicon Valley. Come on over and stay with me. And not only that, I've got like a network of people that are all that era, that all had equity, that have done really well. I'm sure that some of them will be investors for you. So... And that's the kind of thing you see every day in the Shio network. So it's a couple of things. If you're a woman out there and this really resonates with you, um, go to shio.world, find activation, find the Australian chapter. We're still open for this round of funding and, you know, put $1,100 um, into a radically generous mode. Come along and um, join us for the Shio Summit, which will be held in Brisbane at Howard Smith Wharf on the 2nd of April and sit in a room with 200 um, women and ambassadors that really care about this kind of way that we want to grow businesses. Having been to one of the breakfasts, I can tell you firsthand the the vibe in the room, the positivity, the mentoring, it, it's it takes it to a whole other level and it really does and the the networking that goes with it so i can imagine and that was that was a small breakfast in the city i can imagine the whole shio uh the the big conference is just going to be that exploded that it's going to be that more on steroids so uh, the if people want to come to the big conference where are the details for that? Uh, you can go to sheeo.world. So it's S-H-E-E-O dot W-O-R-L-D. And find the Australia chapter. Yeah, that, that's the global page. You can find everything you need to find there, the stories. It's very transparent. Um, the whole thing is really just based on the connecting of the two sides of the marketplace. But if you're also a woman out there that harbours an interest um, to do something on the side, you know, it's not a silly idea. You're not a hobby. You know, I have women that, that work in business two days a week and that's a valid business. You know, I've got, I've got you know, I, I addressed a, a wonderful group the other day, the Migrant business women's network and women had driven from Toowoomba there was like 200 people in this room and they've come from you know terrible places like Sierra Leone and war-torn areas and you know these women were lining up to just sit with other women who really they didn't feel ashamed in front of and felt okay to tell them their story you know one of these women's doing African hair care products you know and Africans one of the highest growing area you know um, immigrants to Australia and there's almost no one dealing in hair products for African women um, and she said oh I drove from Toowoomba she had a child that she was breastfeeding on one and two other children that were playing in the back the other thing with she always bring your children um, we, we have to start creating events that are family friendly so we try to have them at certain times of the day we definitely think about the design of that so anyone that goes to she if you need childcare we will provide childcare because that is definitely um, a barrier to women participating and we want to be smarter about how we do this. And uh, so for me, come and sit with First Nations women. You know, this year, first time ever, we'll have an Indigenous woman that will be part of the cohort that will be funded. And that's really exciting because, you know, if if women that, you know, come from privileged white backgrounds can't get funded, you know, Indigenous and migrant women are even further down the train. So we're about creating generational change um, and creating some really exciting businesses that make money and do good. 
sheeo.world. Go and check it out. Get to the airport or cruise ship terminal on time without the hassles. More than just great music. This is Bay FM 100.3 and Deep Blue Something. Breakfast at Tiffany's, which was always a fantastic movie. It and was. Fa- and fa- fantastic in theory. We, uh, this is the Searchlight program and the entrepreneur's journey. And oh, we've only got about 26 minutes left. Where's all the time gone? I know the time Tricky. has just fled. We could sit here all night until at least two or three in the morning and just chatting. Fortunately, Searchlight is back again in a month. Now, we're going to talk about that in a little while. John Burkett from Startup Redlands is my co-host for this evening. We've had so many amazing women talking. We've got one more to have a a chat tonight. Now, uh, what we had a couple of weeks ago with Startup Redlands... Yeah, about two weeks ago. We had... It was the last Startup Redlands and... um one of the pictures of the evening was Christine, Christine Keeling from Longhorn Spa, who walked away with first prize. Ah, didn't you? It was yeah. very exciting. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Congratulations to that. Thank you. That was wonderful. Um, but one of the things we want to do on this program uh, each month is feature a, a local business, uh, a local startup business. And um, so just tell us, a, tell, us, tell us a bit about yourself and a little bit about Longhorn Spa. Sure, thank you. Um, so I've got a funny accent because I'm Canadian, um, and I've been in Australia for seven years, but uh, it's not going away. So, um, oh, don't don't worry. I'm a new Australian <laughs> too, as you can probably tell. <laughs> uh, but thank you very much for having me, Sharon and John. It's been uh, a, a real pleasure to be sitting here and listening to these amazing women. And uh, I do not feel worthy to even share this story. No, but you deserve to be here just as uh, much well, as everyone thank else. You. Yeah, and so. Um, Long Haul Spa has been kicking around for uh, almost a year and a half. It launched in December of 2018. Um, and I had been working on it for uh, probably about four months before that. Um, and uh, it was born from my need, um, traveling back and forth between Canada and Australia as a technology um, refugee now, but then representing uh, North American technology companies in the Asia-Pacific region. And I was on planes constantly and it was destroying my complexion and I was having a problem finding appropriate products to um, use in flight and was packing up my own little kits because I couldn't find anything to um, uh, in the market so the usual suspects Sephora, Mecca, um, airport retail, duty-free did not have a go-to kit that I could use and so I had started putting them together and I thought it was very puzzling that they didn't exist and uh, then a car accident in August um, of 2018 stopped me flying and at that point I just went Mm, I think this is the universe telling me something. And so I started uh, trying to figure out how to do it in earnest. And uh, I was very lucky and was introduced to a woman named Stacy Fraser, who was the original formulator of the Trilogy skincare line, who was now um, doing her own uh, uh, formulations. And uh, so she and I worked together and came up with a suite of products. And uh, I then went to... Um, a group called Like-Minded Bitches Drinking Wine <laughs> that uh, everybody here may know. That is a fantastic yes. Facebook group. Yes, it is. And I just put out a note saying I was looking for women who were going to be flying in the next 30 days to test some products. And I had, I think, over 70 put their hands up. And I sent these um, beta kits all over the world. 
and got their feedback. Um, and we iterated the products based on what uh, we heard back from the women on the products, the packaging, um, everything that had to do with it, changed everything up, and then we launched. And so since then, we have been selling online on our website, and we've just been picked up by Singapore Airlines. And um, we're talking to a couple of uh, duty-free organizations as well. Hopefully, you'll see us in the Australian uh, airport soon. And uh, we're also carried by a couple of local companies, uh, Perch and Pantry, who are uh, down on uh, Shore Street, and The Collective in Wynnum, both carry us. And, uh, oh, Temple and Webster just picked us up. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. So it's been it's been interesting. And, uh, of course, now we're into a whole new challenge with the coronavirus and people not traveling. So looking at how does that affect what we're doing, um, what are, you know, is there going to be a long-term effect? Certainly duty-free and travel retail have um, been hit very hard, especially in this area, um, in this region. So, you know, Hong Kong and China and, you know, they're the biggest uh, groups that uh, travel around here. And so that's a big challenge. So now we're looking at um, uh, the possibility of putting these kits into uh, hospitals in the uh, gift shops because anybody who's going into the hospital who uh, wasn't expecting to be staying for two weeks may have a need for these sorts of things. So, yeah, just looking at other op opportunities right now. Because the, the skin care, the, the products you've got in there, isn't the, from memory there's five or six products in there. Eight. Eight. Yes. Well, mm -hmm. I, I was thinking on the skin care yeah. thing. I, mm -hmm. I know that there's other... Um, no, there's actually, there. well, there's eight skincare products, including a lip balm. Yeah, but yes, oh, right. there, there are eight. Yeah. And they're mm -hmm. very high quality. You want to talk about those? Yeah. So, um, like I said, Stacey Fraser um, has done our formulations. The products are made uh, in New Zealand from New Zealand botanicals. So they're vegan, they're cruelty free, paraben free suitable for sensitive skin, really, really uh, very nice um, products. And uh, they've um, been formulated specifically for what you go through on a flight in terms of um, not only the lack of hydration, but building a barrier to um, keep bacteria and those sorts of things uh, off of your skin as well. So it's, uh, it's quite a, um, a rigorous sort of regime in terms of putting the product it only takes 10 minutes to put it all on but it's um it's been something that we've worked through in terms of making sure that uh it's a very effective process so that you actually get off the plane looking better than when you got on <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you can imagine yeah. yes we all need that. yes absolutely <laughs> absolutely and so you know the, the kit comes with you know a micellar water but also comes with dehydrated towels because you shouldn't be using this in the toilet in an airplane because they're filthy um so it comes with uh, uh sanitizing wipes to you know clean your hands wipe down all of your area and everybody needs these now more than ever um and uh then you know the, the dehydrated towels you just drop them into a, a cap full of water and you can uh, they're use amazing. Cell water. yeah they're, 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 like they're a, the best they look like part. a tablet yes wow they're great yeah. sort of, sort of, wow exactly <laughs> and so we've been very conscious in how we put this kit together so so, for example, our you know our little blue plastic bottles are made by Ant Packaging in northern uh, uh, New South Wales and Bangalore, and they're the only zero carbon footprint plastics company in Australia. Um, you know, we uh, our bags come from Lowenhide, who are local. Um, they're an iconic Australian brand, and so um, you know everything in this kit has been really thought out in terms of what 
um, what goes into it, where it comes from. It's, um, you know, everything that we can possibly do in Australia, we've done in Australia. The artwork. And the artwork was uh, designed by um, uh, an Aboriginal artist by the name of Jonas Dare. Um, she's a Barngarla woman from Southern Australia. Um, so the, the packaging itself, I can show it to you. There we go, holding up the mic. <laughs> um, it, it's a, a beautiful uh, song line called um, Seven Sisters. And uh, the song line itself is written up on the inside of the packaging. So we've got the story of the song line. We've got Jonas's story on the inside. And that's to raise awareness about Aboriginal artwork and, and the artist herself. And, you know, with, of course, the intention of this being shipped globally so you know having it available in airports all over the world and really raising um the aboriginal art community uh here in australia globally so and it is beautiful uh, it's too. stunning she's, she's done such a beautiful job yeah so um yeah it's it's been a, a really interesting journey certainly very different than anything i've ever done like i said I've, I've been in technology forever and to work with a physical product has just been um a, a little bit of a mind bend. It's, I mean, it's it's fascinating to be able to actually touch what you did, um, versus you know at the end of the day going, well, that was interesting, but I haven't got anything to show for it. Um, but you know, you wind up with a, a lot of things that you need That's to my move. Mm -hmm. It's not it's not sitting in the cloud somewhere. And yes, it's no, it's not. In front of you. Well, it does yeah. need to get up to the clouds yeah. though, so yeah. we're yeah. working well, on that. Yes. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. That's because, yeah. Okay. No. All right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's it. But no. Uh, just to go back to to a couple of things you said. I mean, that's two things that struck me about what you said. First of all, as we've already heard this evening, you were solving a problem that you had. Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that's that's been a theme that has emerged in several places this evening, which I think is I think is really interesting. The other thing is you did go about testing the market. You you, mm. you put it out there, you put it into sample groups, and you got the feedback. Yes. So you did that very very critical market testing phase as well. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think we can kid ourselves to to want to believe that everybody's got the same problem that we do. And, you know, I had um, anecdotally witnessed it. I saw other women doing these things on planes. We've all seen the woman with the, you know, the paper masks on the flights. I was her. Um, uh, we've solved that with a gel mask in here. There's no paper masks. But, you know, I, I kept seeing other women doing these sorts of things. And, and people asked me on the flights about what I was doing and those sorts of things. Oh, that's such a good idea. I should do that too. But that doesn't mean that there's a market for it. And so by sending this out, um, you know, and, and getting people who um, I didn't know because our friends all think they're doing us a favor by telling us we've got great ideas, mm. but we really need the people who are going to say, you know what, that's really dumb, or um, there's too many products in here, or I really hated the smell, or whatever it is, those are the people that you really need. And so that was very, very important so, I, I, to I think us. That's one of the smarts about good mm. entrepreneurs, mm. is I think there's this element about Yes, you can have total belief and total commitment that you've mm -hmm. got the right product, but yeah. you're still going to test that hypothesis. You're still, Absolutely. You always, I, I sometimes say you've got to behave like a scientist. Mm. You've got to set out to try and disprove your theory. Absolutely. And then if it gets validated, great. You know, uh, and, and be willing to iterate based absolutely. on you know, yeah. what you hear back. And so, I mean, we, we've changed our product, uh, 
our, our uh, packaging three times already and you know the next iteration that's coming in is changed again it's a little bit smaller it's a little bit more compact because even though this is beautiful it's got a little bit of space available at the top and when you're trying to stick it in a bag it takes up a little bit more so you know we're just constantly trying to change it and and you know looking at other different ways to to put it together that's going to make sense for people so through that we've come up with you know we've got a men's kit now we've got a smaller kit that's only got three products in it and so really just kind of looking to you know identify what does the market really need and be able to do it and the beauty of it is that we can just keep changing and you know if the market changes completely we'll change that's fine so you know right now we're looking at it, do, do we really need this in healthcare? Is there is that a market? Is that something that people need? And so we're just starting to go through and and test that and see if it is or if it's just you know. Would would that be a would that be a, a pivot? As mm. You say so. It would it be a change in direction or would it be another complementary? It would. It product? would be. A, it would just be another channel. Another channel. Yeah. Another absolutely. Yeah, okay. No. So we won't yeah. go away from this. I mean, mm. travel retail is going to come back. There's no question. Oh, absolutely. That. Have yeah. you considered um, the coffee shops in? airports the coffee shops yeah because um, one of the last things that mm-hmm. you do when you've yeah. got your ticket mm-hmm. you've put your baggage in mm-hmm. you're walking down to your gate yeah. if you've got any time available mm-hmm. one of the one of the nice things to do is sit down have a cup of coffee mm-hmm. have a bite to eat and and just now you're there you can mm-hmm. just relax yeah. up until then your brain is super duper busy yeah but once you've gone through check-in mm-hmm. once you are at the gate it's like oh now I've got 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. All right, I might just go and wander and have a cup of coffee and just go and have a, a squeeze at a couple of bits and pieces. So maybe even there, having having this pack mm-hmm. in the coffee shops yeah, where people are standing there waiting for their coffee, waiting for the toasted sandwich, and have a, a look and just kind of go, mm, yeah, oh, well, yeah, that's not a bad idea. Certainly worth, uh, worth taking a look, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy to talk to anybody who's got a coffee shop in an airport. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, yeah. At uh, at the startup Redlands mm-hmm. pitch night, that was your ask. Mm-hmm. Where can we put this? Right. Well, uh, mm-hmm. since then, the coronavirus has certainly added to your potential. What a change, huh? Places, yeah, uh, and, and market, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that was another one. Is mm-hmm. like just thinking about it logically. What do you do when you go to the airport? It's a rush, mm-hmm. rush, 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 rush to get to your gate. Yeah. And then you've got 10, 15 minutes where mm-hmm. it's like, oh, now I can chill. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's well worth looking at for sure. And if you've got any other ideas, please let Christine know. <laughs> got it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but I, I mean, and you're running this from here in the Redlands. That's, yes, I am. Yeah. That's yep. uh, great. So we're, we're all about local successes. That's what we want. We want more economic activity in the Redlands so we don't mm. just become a dormitory suburb for Brisbane. You know, yeah. That's kind of what we're up down to. Well done with that. That sounds absolutely fantastic. Thank um, you. So hang around. We're not quite done yet. We've got another 12 minutes or so to run and uh, maybe we can wrap up a few other things, but uh, maybe it's time for a little musical interlude. We can certainly do that. It's a, a music radio station. We can do that. Goo Goo Dolls. This is BFM 100.3. Searchlight and the entrepreneur's journey. Thank you, Christine. Thank you. This is Bay FM 100.3. <laughs> 
More than just great music and more than just lots of chatting while the music is going on. Tonight has just been so amazingly interesting. It's Searchlight and the Entrepreneur's Journey. And tonight has been the first night. I'm wow, I've got to say, what an absolute incredible start. It's, it's okay. We've only got 11 more to do. It's all right. I know, but oh my God. This is the benchmark. Ladies, this is the, the benchmark. And it Set has been awesome. High. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming. Before we wrap up, um, John, you'd like to ask Yeah, one look, I think, you know, because, you know, the program is about encouraging entrepreneurial activity. We want to try and get more of this stuff going. So we've, we've got a fantastic selection of, of serious talent in this room. And I'd, I'd like to try and tap into that a little bit for the, for the benefit of anybody thinking about doing this stuff. So we're just going to go around the table briefly. And I've just got one really, really sort of very simple question. Um, but, but ideally, I'd like succinct answers because we're running out of time. Um, if what would your message be to somebody just starting out on their entrepreneurial journey? They're just on the verge of maybe getting their startup underway, thinking about getting it started. What's the little pearl of wisdom that you would like to pass on to them? Let's start with Monica. What would you say? Just do it. Oh, I love that. Nice. That's pithy and shortened to the point. That's wonderful. That's fantastic. Oh, she's got more there. Hold on. Yeah. Well, I just want to add, nothing is too small. And particularly I'm appealing to the women out there. We often read a lot of stuff about startups that mean, you know, millions of dollars and only clever people that know how to code can do stuff or you have to be, you know, a big executive career before you can have a successful business. All of that is incorrect. The world has changed. So no matter whether you've got two hours a week or you want to do it full time, all of those are acceptable and all of those can find funding. Totally concur with that completely. Marianne. Um, I think for me it is to actually have faith in yourself. I, I often think, oh gosh, I'm not really a proper entrepreneur or a proper CEO or whatever it is. Well, you are, no matter what you're doing. And you've got the privilege of starting with a blank sheet of paper. Write down what's important to you and write down your goals and your values. And it's a privilege to build a business from the ground up and, and just enjoy the journey as much as you can and the challenges with it. Brilliant, thank you. Christine? Ooh, um, I would say don't take no for an answer. You're just talking to the wrong person. Um, stay curious and always test your theories. Love it. Excellent. And Shannon, what would you add to those? Um, I guess my piece of advice would be if you, if you have a certain problem, say it's not getting enough clients and customers, just... The most simple thing is to jump onto Google. You'll find the answer to everything and you can find the mentors or different people that you need. So no question or no problem is undiscoverable. It's out there and someone's already solved it. So piggyback off their findings. Brilliant. I've got one last thing for every single one of us in this room. Shannon, you have a website. People can contact you. Yeah, so Shannon Stone. Shannon, not Sharon. Uh, Shannonstone.com.au Christine. <coughs> longhaulspa.com longhaulspa.com Well, our website's still under construction, but it will be marlwellnesscompany.com.au So M-A-R-L wellnesscompany.com.au Monica. Uh, my, my choice is Twitter. So you can find me at, at Mon B Leaves, L E A V E S, um, or look for me on LinkedIn, Monica uh, Bradley. 
and sheo.world. Oh, sheo.world. Ladies, if you're out there and just curious, go and Google it. Come along to the... Uh, we've got a unique opportunity here to come to the summit on the 2nd of April and hear from um, some remarkable women. Just being in that room will set you on fire. It, it truly will. It truly will. And John Burkett, my co-host... Oh, you want you want a www. I want a wobble use from from your business, and also because coming up in just a couple of weeks' time, it's startup Redland. So yeah, so two www's yes. for me. Uh, for me personally, www.advicepoint.com.au. That's and what do you do me. with advicepoint.com.au? I usually help people put their advisory boards and advisory panels together. So, and often for tech startups and that sort of stuff. So that's kind of my scene with helping people. Uh, one of my little sayings is, you know, sometimes find, finding the answers is easy. It can actually be getting the right question that can be quite hard. You know, so you, if you've got to get the right answer, you've got to have the right question in the first place. And that's not always as obvious as, it's, as it seems. So that's one of the things I do. Um, the other thing uh, for local stuff is um, please do come along and join us on the 18th uh, of this month. Uh, we'll be once again congregating at the bench in Cleveland for Startup Redlands. So that's www.startupredlands.com.au. Registration is free. We do have to limit the number of places because it's a fairly small venue, as, as Christine knows. It can be quite compact, can't it? Yes. And uh, so, but it can be good fun as well. And we have a nice evening and uh, we'll have three, three great preachers coming along uh, and we'll have an interesting speaker who I'm still sorting out, but we'll, we'll get there with that very soon. I'm sure we can find yeah. one. <laughs> this is Bay FM 100.3. I've got to say a big, big, big thank you. The weather has been horrendous. Uh, so thank you, ladies. Thank you, everyone, for coming out on this blah, weather kind of night. Uh, our amazing guests, Cindy Corey from Sycamore School, Shannon Stone, winner of International Women's Day Award for Young Emerging Leader, Marianne Thaxton and your partner, who couldn't make it tonight, but that's okay. Lynette Roos was, you know, she was here in spirit, I know, from Marl Wellness, and they are making pre- and probiotics Yummy. Coming up in a few weeks' time, or maybe shortly after Easter, she's going to be uh, joining me on Two Chicks and a Mic. Christine Keeling, pampering with Long Haul Spa and the incredible, the absolutely amazing, definitely want to clone you, Monica Bradley from SheEO. It has been an absolutely incredible night. And John Burkett, thank you. It's been a blast. I've loved it. It's wonderful. Can we do a quick 30-second plug for the next program? Uh, 6th of April, we'll be back. Uh, our topic will be around what problem are you solving and validating your idea. And, and also, we're going to look a little bit at why startups succeed or fail. Okay. Come and join us, April 6th. Actually, Monica, here's an invitation. Come back on April 6th and tell us how SheEO, the summit was, on April 2. Yes. For sure. Absolutely wonderful. <laughs> this is Bay FM. Have a great night. Thank you for joining us on our inaugural Searchlight, The Entrepreneur's Journey. Have a great night. <laughs>